Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Thanks again so much for being willing to sit down and do this with me, well, present and in person, live. <laughs> well, so thank you so much for your enthusiasm, and it's it's great to uh, to get to meet you in person. It's it's nice for me because I often see names and comments, but it's it's good yeah. to meet a person. Well, I mean, and this is a different kind of getting to know each other, right? This is one of the other one of the other knows. This is what is this participatory knowing? Uh, this would be mostly perspectival, but a little bit of participatory. Yeah. Picking up a little bit on your sense of what yourself is. Right. Yeah. And, and, and perspectival or I don't know. <laughs> perspectival so, is your, your, um, your situational awareness, sort of your, um, state of mind, situational awareness, uh, your salience landscaping. So, um, yeah, I mean, that one it was still a little, little bit harder for me to grasp. But I mean, initially when you laid out those known knowings, just at least contrasting that there's more ways of knowing than propositional, I was like, that that's the first thing that really clicks. I've been trying to kind of to dig into those those later two, but at least like participatory and well, yeah, yeah, maybe we can we can dig into those a little bit. Sure. But, um, but, but before we do that, yeah, remember I, and as long as we're we're good to do this still. Obviously, I'm. I told you before, I was a little bit nervous to meet you in real life, and you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm very nervous too. <laughs> I, I'm socially phobic by nature, so these things are, are challenging. For me. But you seem like a really friendly guy, so that's all. Well, thank you. That, that's that's nice to hear. Um, but you said before that you'd be willing to 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 lead in in a bit of a breathing exercise. Sure. To maybe maybe that will maybe that'll help both of us. But yeah. I, I thought that would be a cool way to start. You know, a talk a little bit about spirituality and spiritual practice. Sure. And, sure. So it's up to you. What do you want to do? Uh, I think the thing I'd like to do is uh, teach you how to find your center. And let me talk about it a little bit, okay. the three components, and then I'll talk you through it. So first, as I'm uh, going to move back and forth and then side to side uh, with your eyes closed, feeling off center this way and then this way and then do it with your head. And then once we feel centered that way, we're going to center our attention. And I like to use a metaphor it's it's become something of a meme so the way i'm looking through my glasses right now right this is how i normally look through the way i'm framing the world right. my salient landscaping right what you do in meditation is you step back and look at it rather than automatically looking through it right and so what we're going to do is you're going to look at your sensations rather than sensing the world through them and so you're going to pay attention to the sensations in your abdomen being generated by your breathing. So as you breathe in, silently say to yourself, in, and feel your sensations, and then breathe out and feel the sensations. And of course, you'll get distracted. And when you get distracted, when you're thinking about something rather than looking at your mind, right, um, 
label the process. Don't get involved with the content. Just label the process like thinking, imagining, wondering, hoping. Yeah. Don't don't worry about being super precise. Yeah. Just label it. Return your breath. Return your attention to the breath. In, out, in, out. And then the third dimension of centering. So you're centering your posture, centering your attention. And then the third dimension is you're centering your attitude. Uh, so you, this the, the part of your mind that jumps around in the Buddhist tradition is called the monkey mind. What you're trying to do is tame it, like taming a puppy dog. This is Jack Cornfield. So if when you if you were trying to train a puppy dog to stay, and when it went away, you just ah, you got angry at it. Uh, you'll train it to fight and to fear you. But if you just let it go wherever it wants, it'll never learn to stay. So you're trying to neither fight it nor feed it. You're trying to center your attitude. You're trying to befriend it. So you're centering your posture. I'll, I'll talk you through that exercise. Centering your attention and then centering your attitude. Does that okay. does that make sense? Yeah. And, I mean, and it does click with a lot of, I mean, obviously this plugs right into the, the rest of your teaching and the philosophy and the stuff that you cover. So I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, this is good. Let's, let's try it then. <laughs> okay. So you want to sit a little bit forward um, off the back of your chair so you can just move and close your eyes and then move forward a bit. Make sure don't you, hit, you don't hit the mic. And then back... <laughs> And so you can, you're going to feel off-center, back and forth, and they're just paying attention to those sl- sensations, slowly home in on being centered back to front. And then once you've settled to that, we do the same thing now side to side, move one side, feel off-center, then the other. And then, again, a little less each way until you come to being centered Side to side. So that's your torso. Now we do it with our head, forward and back, off center. Little less each way until we come back to center. Then side to side. Slowly centering. Feel your head and body centered together. Now just savor that. What's it feel like in your body? What does it feel like in your mind to be centered? Relax your abdomen muscles and your chest muscles. Really sink into your center. Feel the connection down to the floor. Make sure your head isn't tilting forward at all. Now let your attention gradually drop. No forcing of your breath, nothing. Just gradually drop to where you feel your breath in your abdomen most prominently. Just make that connection first. leaving your breath running naturally. As you inhale, mentally say in and feel the sensations in your abdomen. As you exhale, out, feeling the sensations. Now gently continue to do this. And if your mind leaps away, just label the process, not the content, an ING word, thinking, imagining, and in a way in which you are befriending yourself, befriending your monkey mind, 
Center your attention as you bring your attention back. Sorry, center your attitude as you bring your attention back to the breath. And just start following your breath again. Don't be frustrated with the repetition. This is like doing reps in weightlifting. Let's begin to come slowly out of the practice, trying as best you can to integrate what you've cultivated in the practice with your everyday consciousness and cognition. Meditation is not a vacation, it's an education. Wow. <laughs> that was... I'm glad we did that. That was really hard, though. <laughs> like, I, I, just a moment like this, like there's so many, so many thoughts. I'm like, oh, what, what are some ideas I'd like to bring up? How, how do I even want to talk about what we're doing right now? And it's like, I felt like there was like 14 reps per second of, as far as in the, yeah, the weightlifting yeah, analogy. Yeah, yeah. like, my attention runs over here. And, I, <laughs> and it's so hard to, 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 to bring that back without you know, doing it excessively forcefully. And say, yeah. No, you, you have to be, you got to focus. Yeah, you got to yeah. focus on the breath. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, man, I mean, I, I could see why you call that a practice because that's, that's good. That takes practice. It does. It does. It, I mean, I've been doing it since 91. So what's that? 30 years. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 um, it's something you, it, so in the Buddhist tradition, you're considered to be befriending yourself and it's something like a friendship. You have to cultivate it. You have to keep it going, and, and yeah. but if you do it right, it, it changes, it develops, it has, it has a life of its own, but it can last a lifetime if properly attended to. Mm. And, and that's, 
I mean, for one thing, that's an interesting idea that you can befriend yourself. Like mm, is. Mm. I mean, and it kind of connects to, I've been listening to Ian McGilchrist. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ian and I have had a talk. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yes. I, I didn't, I haven't heard that yet, but yeah, I, I yeah. definitely want to go listen to that. <laughs> Yeah. It's on Rebel Wisdom Channel, the okay. Rebel Wisdom Channel. Yeah. yeah. I really, really love Ian's work. Mm. And, and actually where I'm going to be able to talk to him in October. Excellent. And, but yeah, I mean, so that was I'm really excited for that as well. But I mean, he talks about, I mean, just like obviously within the brain, there's a bifurcation of, of almost of, of consciousness where it's mm, like there's, mm. a, there's, so there's at least two uh, experiences or essences of what it's like to be you within your brain that are sort of connecting it. And, and so there's, I mean, and that's an at least, I think, an at least statement. It is. I don't know how many. Because yeah. uh, you, you, you want to also uh, talk not only about left and right, you also want to talk about front and back the frontal cortex yeah. and prefrontal versus the rest of the brain. And you also want to talk top Bottom. down, yeah. right? Because the, the neocortex versus the more ancient structures of the brain uh, all the way down to the cerebellum and the central nervous system. Right. So you, you want those three axes to be um, as, uh, as optimally synchronized as possible. So, so there's a relational element between different parts of your brain, which may be different parts or different consciousnesses within you. I'm no. not sure if that's, if that's sloppy language, but... Um, that sort of, you know, fostering a friendly relationship with different parts of yourself. I don't know. I mean, I know you've talked about that. I'm not sure who first kind of introduced me to that sort of thinking, but that's been, oh, it's been a really pivotal thing for me to start to think about in relationship to my faith, mm, which mm -hmm, I, mean, I mm. talked to you a little bit about that. Like yeah. I have a, an interesting relationship with Christianity where I, yeah. I feel like a, Partially, I'm, I'm I'm a Christian within the confines of my community, and personally, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure. <laughs> I have a uh, not the same, but a, a, a similar kind of thing. I was brought up um, uh, as a fun in a, as a fundamentalist Christian, and um, I I, don't, I no longer identify so. Um, but I I I have over I have people. I, I hesitate to say this because it's gonna I don't want it to be taken the wrong way. Uh, but I have people um, saying that they find me, no, not me, that's too grand, but they find the, some of the ways I'm talking and presenting ideas uh, to be very Christ-like. Um, and um, my partner, she's officially an atheist, although she's a very stunningly spiritually beautiful person. Um, and she once said that she thought I was the only Christian she'd ever met. Um <laughs> Which is an odd thing. Um, and so, I mean, Christianity for me, and maybe this is for you too, it's very much like, you know how we, we talk about having a mother tongue, your first language. Christianity is my mother religion. Right. Um, and same thing with m m the partner in a lot of my work, um, my co-author and dear friend, Christopher Master Pietro. He also is in a sim similar situation. Mm. And in some ways, we're kind of embodying what the West is going through. Right, this attempt uh, to come into a relationship uh, to, and it, for some people it's still Christian, for some people it's post-Christian, or for some people, you know, because they've immigrated, it's other than Christian. But nevertheless, that has been the sacred canopy of the West, and coming to understand what it would mean to be in right relationship with that, and coming to see if and this is one I, I want to say this very carefully because I, I have a lot of uncertainty about it, but. Um, trying to see what realities were being disclosed by the Christian framework, what 
ecologies of practices it afforded for the cultivation of wisdom and virtue, um, seeing uh, to what degree um, that is possible uh, for people who don't identify as Christian or identify in some other religion. And, and to do this, of course, respectfully to Christianity um, it's been something I've been, I've been uh, aspiring to do. Um, and so I'm, I, 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 and I'm, I'm privileged to have friendship with people who uh, declare themselves as Christian, like Paul Van der Klee, J.P. Marceau, uh, 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 Pajot. Pajot, yeah, Pajot. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure if Jordan Peterson is Yeah, Christian I don't know if he's here. But, uh, and so, and I, and I deeply appreciate, and, and Mary Cohen is uh, another person, I deeply appreciate um, the depth of their lives and their vision uh, but I have similar relationships with people who are Buddhist or Taoist and, and uh, Sufi, and I'm really trying to understand. Um, I'm trying to understand something about this. I mean, that's the whole project uh, that I'm sort of engaged in. Mm. And, uh, well, I mean, it seems like it might even feed into a larger problem of like identity in general that we're struggling with in maybe the West, maybe just the world. As and I, I, I've. I guess been framing a lot of the different places we're going in, you know, in this moment in time in terms of like what's happened due to the internet and the radical connection that's happened there. And it's like, I wonder if part of the reason people don't want to be, I mean, I might be uncomfortable calling myself a Christian in some contexts. And and we obviously you said you don't want to identify as a Christian Mm -hmm. is because like identities in general, they, they seem too general. It's like there's, there's this, all this baggage that gets loaded onto them in this in, in this very broad public space. Oh, it's like, yeah, you know, you yeah. say you're a Christian, like, oh, so that means you believe in this and this and this and that you hate gay people and all, all this stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, I mean, I didn't say any of that. I just said I was a, a Christian. And it's like, and, and then it's like, it becomes uncomfortable to say, oh, well, you know, I don't want to say that. I mean, in some spaces, I don't want to even mention the name Jordan Peterson because some people oh, for sure. are, are immediately, there's all this baggage that comes along with that name that I'm like, well, I, he's I mean, a polarizing guy. <laughs> right. And it's, it's just becomes the, yeah, this problem of like, okay, in private spaces with people who I know, know what I mean when I'm saying certain names or, or giving certain identities, it's like, I don't have any problem with that. Cause there's a, there's a, I don't know, there's a, there's a comfort in, in, in knowing that communication is going to be a little bit less weighed down with a lot of presuppositions and prejudgments. Yeah, that's very, I mean, that, that, that's, that's very astute. I think the, uh, the notion of identity um, is taking the place for a lot of people of their sense of, uh, if you'll allow me to speak for me poetically, their, their sense of soul. Uh, their sense of sort of what their fundamental self is, um, and and its fundamental relationship to the world, and they're trying to do what the soul and the self have for millennia done, which is you know put us into relationship with what we think is most real, connect us most to ourselves, to each other, and to the world, and we're trying to make the and it's you know the problem is it's been. It's been rendered mostly a political notion uh, when it should properly be, I'm not saying it should exclude that, but it should more properly be an ontological, ethical, existential notion. And so people, that's why I think there's a lot of fervor attached to this notion of identity in, in its political form, precisely because people are trying to 
find a non-religious version of the kind of meaning that was given by the, the, the sense of the soul or, or consciousness, depending on which tradition you're talking to. Cause, right. But the, the thing about you that is most fundamentally real and how does it get into right relationship with fundament, the fundamental reality, right. Uh, uh, of the world. And so people are, are struggling with that. And I also think that that's, I, there's a lot of, um, difficulty associated with that. Like you said, people are feeling like they're, it's unstable. They're constantly negotiating it and they're trying to figure out the degree to which identity is not um, being equal. To, I don't mean politically equal. I mean, in the mathematical sense, you were just struggling with that. You're a Christian. You meet another person who's a Christian. Does that mean you have exactly all the same yeah. beliefs and orientations? Well, of course not. But how much can you vary from shared until the point where you don't belong together. That's what right. people are really struggling with right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really difficult thing. And I, I think that's, I mean, I, I don't want to dive too deep in, into this topic, but I, th I think that's probably part of why we're having some of these conversations, even about like pronouns and various things. It's just like mm -hmm. nobody, nobody feels well understood in a space where, you know, all you get is, you know, a few lines on your, your Twitter bio or your Instagram bio to let people know who and what you are and, and how you exist and what, like what your identity is. It's like, I don't, it's like, I don't want to have a label if, if you're going to use that against me and just put me into this tiny little space of, of being able to brush off. Oh, that's what a Christian is. Or that's what a, that's what a man is. Yeah. You know, I think that's right. And I think the problem is that framing it as an identity, even the term identity, right? Framing it as an identity issue, I think is to, I have to be careful here because I understand that people are suffering. There are groups that are you know, persecuted. I, I don't want to deny any of that. But I think framing it as identity is a fundamental mistake because I think what we're ultimately after is connected, uh, this sense of connectedness. We were doing it in the exercise, befriending yourself. I mean, the Socratic tradition, know thyself, right? Which is a different thing than being identical or identifying yourself. Okay, I was going to ask you what that what that etymology is there. Like, what what are you tapping into when you're saying like you're contrasting identity with with something? Well, just let, let, let let's just play play with it a little bit. Some serious conceptual play. So you, no doubt, like every other person I've met, will do very bizarre things. You'll point to a a, a flat photograph picture of yourself, right, as a two year old, and say, "There I am." Yeah. And like, think of the number of properties you don't share. That two year old couldn't speak English, couldn't drive a car, right. doesn't have all your... No so what kind... It's not the identity. It's not categorical identity. It's not logical identity. So the identity we have with ourselves isn't something that is properly understood as a, a stable set of features. Right. So we know... And so, and this is why we, we create these um, mythological metaphors that we're stories. And that yeah, we're, it's a narrative identity. It's a narrative identity. And the thing about narrative identity is it's only one species of non-logical identity that you have. Um, so you also are, in some sense, identical to your consciousness, right? Um, so if I were to take your consciousness away, what have I said to you, Garrett? You can have everything you want in the world, all the wealth and fame, and everybody will love you, you just can't be conscious of it. Would you take the deal? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think I would take <laughs> Right, right, right. But obviously you're not completely identical to your consciousness because 
you lose consciousness every night. And then yeah. you wake up again in the morning. So what's going on there? So you have this weird, non-logical identity even to your own consciousness. It's so familiar to you. But let me, let, let me show you a little bit more what I mean. So your consciousness, you're intimately identical with it. Tell me what it is. Right. I was like, as soon as you brought this up, I was like, well, you got to tell me what you're talking about when you say consciousness. Yeah. Because I mean, like, I think there's a, there's a lot of theories of it. I, I don't understand most of them, but like, I mean, even just thinking about attention, but you you have some problems with identifying attention as consciousness. Uh, yeah, there's, and lots of people do. It's <clears throat> I think attention, I, and even this is controversial. I think attention is a necessary but not sufficient condition for consciousness. So the, notice this, you, you're not completely identical to your consciousness. You're intimately familiar with it. It's precious to you, but you don't know why, and you don't even know what it does, yeah. right? So this is what I mean. We, 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 we're, we, we're, we're actually seeking to be connected to ourselves, to understand ourselves, to know thyself, right? right. And, which it, and again, this doesn't mean having a set of beliefs. It means to understand and more fully realize these, these non-logical connections we have with ourselves. But also you have it to... You're, sorry, you're emphasizing non-logical. Can you... I mean... I think I know why you're doing that, but can you explain? Oh, sure. Yeah, so a, lo a logical identity means two things share all of their properties. Okay, yeah. See, I, I'm, there's a lot of math language you might throw in that, that you might have to yeah. <laughs> say for me. No, no, that's fine. Uh, thank you. No, please do that. Please do that. I, I, I suffer the besetting sin of all academics that I forget um, that familiar jargon is not familiar to everybody. I apologize. That comes off as arrogant, and I don't... I mean, sometimes it's fun, though, just going through the bother of... of unpacking jargon too because you, you you get different places in the conversation too yeah and sometimes it's good also to come up with new terms because yeah. uh, a new term gives a precision of thought that the yeah. existing terms don't have so what i'm trying to emphasize is thinking of it in terms of identity is is oversimplifying and, and makes it too static it's much more about sort of the dynamics of connection uh, and this is what the meaning in life literature shows. What you're seeking for is to be better connected to yourself, to other people, and to the world. And then what's the nature of these connections? Like people, this is not another metaphor. We're not spatially connected. What does that mean to be connected to yourself, to each other, and, right. and to the world? And so that's, for me, what I'm examining, that sense of connectedness. That's meaning in life. I also like to use the term religio mm -hmm. uh, because, that, because for me... For, not for me, for many people, sorry, that was a mistake on my part, that sense of connectedness is where they get their ultimate sense of value, purpose, meaning in life. And so it often has a sacred element to them. And that now we're circled back. That pursuit of identity is a way of trying to pursue that connectedness and render it sacred in some fashion. So you're saying it's it's part of the problem is that just the... Well, it, the problem is the way that we've been presented. The problem is that we're... we're you know, trying to figure out what our identity is, and that's that's not that's not the fundamental question. It's like identity is useful in for certain things, but like identity, it's over identifying yeah. <laughs> over identifying with your identity. I, I don't even know how to get around this language is so embedded with I I don't I guess with English or maybe just recent philosophy, but like yeah, yeah identification ID identical. Yeah, it's like I, I don't want that. I, I want to be personally more deeply connected to yeah to the narrative like the, the teleological like I don't know, like where yeah. I'm going what what I what I am being okay so look at that notice that typically we understand identity is something you have right right whereas what did you do you you reframed it as no this is actually this is it's, uh, it's not something I have it's what I'm becoming 
It's it's an ongoing dynamic, right? Aspiration, and this was one of the great uh, ideas of Socratic know thyself. Socratic know thyself. Uh, it, it, the the self that Socrates is talking about is an aspirational self. You, you, so you have to give up sort of the notion we inherited from Romanticism that we have sort of this inborn true self, and our our job is to find out what that is. That that's being very much undermined by cognitive science, philosophy. Um, and what we're, we're what we're covering is a kind of a point of convergence between the Socratic tradition and the Buddhist tradition. That's, so the Buddhist tradition is befriend yourself so that you can find liberation. The Socratic tradition is you're aspiring to become, right? To become your true self. You are not yet your true self. And this is was this is also in Christianity the idea that, right? Uh, the distinction between being saved and going through the process of sanctification, right? right. So many traditions, uh, or many religious traditions have this idea, um, and in some it, it became mythological, your divine double, that you, or, or Paul, St. Paul, the old man and the new man, the, right? There's, a, there's a, a dynamic aspiration to move from one to the other as the core of what it is, which is paradoxical. The core of being yourself is to, be, is to transcend yourself. But okay, so you're saying maybe I didn't quite follow there because I feel like you just said that that the idea of having you know two different identities is or or like having a true self that's that's a romantic notion we need to kind yeah. of dismiss. Yeah. But then you connected it to Saint Paul and these other and the and the Socratic. Um, so 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 who is Saint Paul's true self? I, I it's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And what is that Christ within him? I would suggest to you, it is that, as he explains it, that moves him from being captive to the old man to realizing the vision of, right, of agape that is the new man. That's that. Now, that's a very complex and dynamic notion of who Paul is, right? And you're seeing the same thing in the Socratic tradition. So Socrates has his daemon, right, his something that's speaking to him and constantly saying, don't go there, don't go there. And it's calling him towards, right, a deeper and deeper uh, understanding of who he is and what he, what, what kind it's, of being he it is. It still sounds like there's this, there's this sense of, a, a, like, there's a deeper real, like, this is the real, the true, the deeper, you know, using all these words, like, even deeper, it's like, okay, so you're getting down to a center of identity where it's like, that's, or again, I'm sorry, I'm still using the word identity. That's fine. But... Like, but but I th- I think that is what I intended to say. Yeah, that like, it's there's still something snuck in there that there's like a that there's a there's a real set of features that I that I'm trying to get to, and then that's like that's the most true version of me. But does do you have them, or are they going to be given to you, or are they going to be disclosed to you? This is this is the difference. But that right. Um, so I mean, and and the radical version of that in Buddhism is to ultimately realize that there is no Atman, right? That instead it's your connectedness to the world that is ultimately what you are, and that isn't a thing. I'm gonna get the camera here. Yeah. So it's not a thing. Sure. Um, and and I I recently did a a series with uh, Greg and Riss. Greg Enriquez and Christopher Master Pietro called the elusive eye on the nature and yeah, function I of the self. Yeah, watch a bit of that. <laughs> yeah, and the idea that you're a sort of a what I what I what I'm pushing on, although I'm not trying to push all the way into the Buddhist frame, is I'm pushing on the idea of yourself as sort of a, an ultimate 
inner thing that you're realizing. Uh, you may look like a statue, but you're much more like a water fountain, right? There's, there's a, a self-organizing process that looks like it has stability, but is actually constantly shaping itself and being shaped by its world. And that, that doesn't mean that there's nothing of value in you or nothing that's real. Let me, let me try one more way. We sort of abandoned the idea, with good reason in science, of objects as inert blobs, right? So what is this bottle actually? Is it, right? It's, oh, it's, it's not inert. There's all kinds of atoms and quarks, and there's interactions with gravity, and it's causally, like, where is it and what is it? As soon as you start to realize it's much more of a verb than a noun, but that doesn't make it not real. Right. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to get you to see, how to see yourself. Yeah, okay. And I think that's good language to use for it too. It's just, it's almost, and I don't know if, if you go this far, but it, it seems to be the case that basically um, thinking of things, like thinking of nouns as nouns is, is our problem. It can be, I mean. Or at least thinking of, of as that being their exclusive and only possible uh, mode of being. Well right? said, like all, well all, said. All yeah. nouns can be verbs as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and, what, and I've read some significant Christian theologians and, uh, and Jewish theologians and had discussions where, and they, and they say to me in all seriousness, and I take them seriously, that God is a verb, not a noun. And, mm. um, and that um, if we are in the image of God, we are ultimately verbs, not nouns. Yeah. And so, so whenever we, you know, frame somebody as this, you know, very small noun thing that's not a process but just a set of features, we are doing the opposite of, of well, I mean, what, what religious traditions would, would teach us to be doing with, with each other. We're, we're like, we're, we're taking something that, that could be sort of living the image of God and limiting it down to just being, or, I mean, obviously you need to do this to some extent. You need to, I mean, we have nouns are a necessary part of language. Yes, yes. And so, I mean, you have to, we have to sort of be able to dismiss things and, and people with, within an identity in order to, whenever we have a, a goal. And so they have to be in relationship to that goal, you become this thing. Of course. And, and, um, and you're exactly right. That is, um, and that's an inescapable part of a process that I call relevance realization. But um, I guess, I don't know why I'm doing this mostly biblical, but perhaps because we <laughs> share a common uh, uh, background. One of the things I'm saying is, right, we're called to remember. We'll stay in the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Sabbath is a day where we're not working, uh, so we can engage in what I would call the serious play of remembering uh, that yeah. Right, and, and when we and let's remember that the word mindfulness means to remember too. Mm-hmm. When we forget and we reduce God or other people or reality to a thing that we grasp, notice the language. I think that's the diff. That's when things start to become not just identities or nouns. It's when they start to become like idols for us in the biblical sense that we mm. are. They're graven images. I mean, the image yeah. of like being on a, a piece of stone. It's like the stone, relative to us, stone doesn't really seem to change. It's yeah. like yes. it's, it's brittle. It's 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 got its structure. And, and 
that that's good. I mean, the way it's it, so it, it loses the capacity for the very thing we're hungry for, uh, which mm -hmm. is to be in a dynamic relation. I mentioned that I, I I'm in love with an astonishingly beautiful person, she, and but um, that doesn't mean that I have to continually remember, and it's not always a pleasant task. I have to continually remember that she will always exceed any image or set of beliefs I've formed about her. And at times she will make it known uh, that her, right, uh, her autonomy, if you want to call it that, that's right. also a dangerous word in some ways, but that that is something that I have to properly revere. I have to have reverence for it. Um, and that's different from trying to hold on to somebody, uh, which yeah. is, again, a way of idolizing them. It's interesting that we are more capable of remembering these important distinctions to some degree mm -hmm. within our romantic relationships because they tend for many people to be where people are still acting the most religiously in their life. Well, I, hmm. I, well, I mean, and, and I think probably the most offensive part of, of doing that, you know, nouning things if we, yeah. want, if we want to make up some new jargon here yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> is that i mean just we were talking about a moment ago where it's like if, if things ha are necessarily nouns within relationship to a particular goal and so i mean in in my relationship to you to some extent you know there's a goal of, of recording a nice conversation and being able to share it with some other people but if, if that's you know if i let that identity mm -hmm. totally consume who you are then 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 I've ruined, you know, potentially the, the experience that could happen here. That's and, well said. And yeah. and that's maybe, and again, I don't know why I want to, it, it just feels like that's that's what the internet affords. It, it allows us to, to share propositional information, information, information ship, <laughs> <laughs> information about everyone and everything, or just about everything you could think of. And it's all within this, you know, it's not, I mean, there's a sense of which you could go and look at a Wikipedia page and see the edit history and see the little bit of process of change. But I, in general, it's a graven image. It's a massive graven image of yeah, the world. Yeah, that's that's very well said. And we have, I guess, I mean, even in a psycho-existential, psycho-ontological sense, uh, we have an idolatrous relationship to it. It's become to to know what you're what what's sacred for you. Look where you're spending your time and investing your sense of self your identity, as we've talked about it. For many people, they're spending hours and hours of every day on social media. Mm -hmm. And while they're doing is trying to craft connection and identity there, and and there's this glowing, shining, you know, addictive Hyper thing. Hypersaline yeah, pornography. Yeah. And, and literally pornography as yes. well. Like, yeah, literally there's... pornography as well, too. And so, yeah, that's a, rel that's a religion for many people, but your point is... The fact that it is that it's it blinds you it blinds you to uh, uh, to genuine self knowledge. In fact, there's the pretense of being somebody and having a life that you don't really it, have. It's a, it's a blindness to to self knowledge, but just to knowledge in general. Yes, it's yes. it's a hyper propositional at worldview. Yes, and, and that's I mean that's I think why people. At least that's why I was drawn to your material, and why there's this new club of of John Verbeke <laughs> and Peterson and McGilchrist and and various other people who are like part of this movement to say there's more to the world than the propositional. Very much, very right? much. And I mean that's that's I mean that's really really important. 
Uh, I think it fundamentally is because I, I think what the cognitive science is showing is that, uh, and this goes back to the Platonic tradition, uh, is that the non-propositional is where most of this connectedness, this meaning in life and the, the way it's often sacred and ultimate for us, it's mostly found in the non-propositional ways of knowing. Right. And so the degree to which we are um, isolated into the propositional and thereby we, we and, that, and this is connected to the fact that we then tend to idolize it, um, to, in, uh, is the degree to which we're, we're, we're sort of self-severing. We're cutting ourselves off from those aspects yeah. of our being that we need to be in touch with in order to find the meaning yeah. we crave. I, 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 some economist wrote that book, The 80-20 Principle, which I, maybe you're familiar with. Yeah. And it's like, the, I mean, fr from an economic standpoint, you can get most of the bang for your buck um, off of 20% of your whole line of products, right? This is like the, almost the idea of sort of downsizing. It's like, okay, you've got, you've got 10 different products and only two of them sell really well. Two of them are, make up 80% of your profit. So you just get rid of the other eight and now you've got two... I mean, you're, you're accomplishing what you think your goal is. Right, right. But you've done this thing where you've gotten rid of, you've gotten rid of all the potential for your company to become something else. Exactly. Great analogy. That's very well said. And, and then it's just, now you're just down to, you, you figured out how to, how, to, how to prioritize profitability, but that's the downfall of the, I guess, I mean, of thinking that you understand what life is about and that it's about, you know, just getting, getting money, accumulating wealth. Well, also the analogy shows that even from the economic standpoint, you, you, you've cut yourself off from being capable of dynamically uh, adjusting to a dynamical. So the market is presumably going to change at right. some point. Exactly. And, and, right. And then this person is going to be bereft. Right. right. Uh, I, so I think that's an excellent analogy. So you have an, a, an identity as a business that's, that's efficient, but fragile. Exactly. Exactly. It's lost robustness or resiliency. Yeah. Um, and um, maybe at some point we'll get into this. I think, you know, learning to dynamically trade between pursuing efficiency and resiliency is the heart of what we're trying to do as cognitive agents and ultimately as, as persons. Okay. I want to take one second and take a look at that camera because I don't know why it's not. <laughs> this guy's still running, so that's good. That's good. So there's actually, I, I want, I, there was a few kind of key points I wanted to, to try to touch on. And, and um, I mean, we're already, we've spent a little bit chatting already and I've really enjoyed talking about <laughs> what we've talked about, but there, there was a few avenues I actually wanted to try to go down together. Please. Um, and like, I mean, obviously in our last talk I mentioned, or not, maybe I didn't even say in the talk, but afterwards we had talked about trying to talk a little bit, I mean, expand our conversation to being a bit about Buddhism and Neoplatonism and Christianity. I mean, and so I wanted to just... We were already of, starting to do that. Which I, is we, really, we, yeah. yeah. And so, so I wanted to, I mean, one of the things, I, the first conversations I, I was able to have for this project was just to talk about the nature of conversation, which was a very fun kind of meta conversation. Yep. And one of the, the things, I mean, it, this was not like, you know, digging into, you know, studies or material on this. We were just threw the idea out there, the four of us, some of my closest friends, and we just try to talk through it. Like what, what makes a conversation interesting or what makes it meaningful? Mm -hmm. Or, and how do, you, how do you engage in a conversation well? And one of the things that we kind of, I mean, 
we realized that in order to kind of set the stage for a conversation, there needs to be a level of of agreement of coming together, mm-hmm. and so you need to begin by basically improving together and doing yeah, some doing much. some yes yeah. and yeah. right. If yeah. you, I mean, you can you can start a conversation that starts with no but, but it, it almost it, cha- it immediately changes the frame to to a debate and a and a, and a clashing yeah. of yeah, yeah. of yeah. being. You know, and I even noticed that I, I was watching you. You had a conversation with Bert Bernardo, yeah, uh, on on Kurt, Kurt's channel, and um, I mean the the way that first conversation began, he set you guys up. What do you guys disagree with about each other? <laughs> and it was just like the, the energy just gets a little bit more intense, and then it suddenly you're like, okay, let's let's slow this down for a second. Let's see, okay, so where where are some points where we where we can overlap? And I I, I thought that was a great example of saying, okay, so this is how much a conversation. Can feel different when you, based on where you begin. Yeah, yeah. And yes, I mean, so I wanted to talk about, I wanted to get to why why there's a split between you know why people who are Neoplatonists aren't Christians or aren't Buddhists and why Buddhists aren't Christians and and why these you know oh, beliefs wow. don't, don't agree. But yeah. I want to start by seeing if we could talk about some places where they connect a little bit. Sure. Um, and obviously, I mean, I am a Christian, or <laughs> in yeah, some yeah. sense of the word. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I'm familiar a lot more with, with Christian texts, although I'm obviously some, I'm limited by my personal tradition. So there's a broader Christian tradition beyond what I, mm. you know, what I understand well too. But I wanted to, I mean, last year I had the chance to start, um, I guess with that same group of friends, we did a, a bit of a challenge where we were going to try to do, I think it was 20 and 30. We wanted to try to do 20 sessions of hot yoga in 30 days for sober October. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> And that, that was a really, really good time um, and made good friends. Actually, I was able to connect with that, the, the instructor for that yoga studio and recorded a podcast with him recently as well. That's great. Um, but it's, it's been cool just to kind of expand my view of, of spiritual practice a little bit. And, but one of the things that I found really meaningful to do, because I mean, all the instructors would at the beginning and end of each session or I guess just at the end. I mean, we started with Savasana and then at the end we would return to that and then we would kind of... They went through a, a bit of a, a talk of just kind of winding down, and then would, they would unpack the meaning of the word namaste, mm-hmm. right? Which was like something like the light that is within me is also within you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or and then so, some instructors would kind of unpack that a little bit more and say like the potential for who we could become. Yep. And for some reason, I, I I didn't consciously understand why this clicked for me at first, but I had this sense that this is the time for me to pl- pray the Lord's prayer. Mm. And so I, I would walk through as a group, we would all say namaste together, but then I would stay on my mat for a little while and I would just kind of meditate on, you know, each line of that prayer. And I mean, for one thing, that prayer has become really important to me because there was, a, there was a, a period where a close friend really let me down in, in a serious yeah. way. And, I, yeah. and I, I had to spend some time thinking about what forgiveness meant in a really deep way because I, I, I said I forgive you, but I did not feel yeah, like I yeah. had, free, and it was like, I had to think, how you do I even believe that you've, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You can deep, you can even believe, um, that you, what you're saying. And you're, you're, so you're absolutely right that you're sincere in the pronouncement, but yet it's not, it's, I haven't figured out what that even is. Right? Yeah. Yes. And so I, I spent a long time one, one evening with, with again, one of these friends trying to figure out what forgiveness meant and just trying to go through everything that I could understand about. I'm going through all these different parables within the Christian canon. And somehow we landed on the, on the Lord's prayer and we were, th- and we we're thinking about this, 
I mean, I, I learned, I went to, into a Bible school, a very small one, a very charismatic one. And some of the stuff I learned there is a little bit more fringe, but some of the stuff was very, very consistent with a lot of other Christian teachings. And, and, and yeah. we were able to touch on some, you know, things that have really helped me to, to have a better relationship with scripture. And, and I mean, some, one of my teachers taught me what a, what a chiasm is. Yes. Right. This this poetic structure of really ancient poetry or, or even narrative sometimes, which I, I guess it's not necessarily a hard line between those in a lot of cases. Yeah. But um, this idea of like, you know, descent and ascent and, and kind of centering on a particular concept and then this kind of mirroring as you as you walk out of that concept. It's like, okay, this is the center of the concept. We're going to start on the periphery and we're going to make our way to the center and we're going to see like maybe two versions of this same concept and then we're going to walk and we're going to see, we're going to walk that whole path we just got to this concept again and we're going to look at all those things sort of in a new light now in the context of having seen this center yeah. point. And I had the sense probably the Lord's Prayer is a chiasm. I'm, that, would, that would make sense, right? And I, and I just, I started to notice these little parallels. And I know, I mean, there are Catholic theologians who talk about the chiasm of the Lord's Prayer. So this is, I, I realize I'm not, first person to, to think yeah. about it this way, although I think I might arrange the chiasm slightly different. That for, for them, they, they center it on the, on the Eucharist and so the giving of the daily bread. But to me, it seemed, and, and maybe, maybe we're both right, maybe, maybe, maybe neither one of us is right, maybe it's not a chiasm. But it, to me, it seemed like the center of the prayer is forgive us that we may forgive or yeah. sir, give us as we forgive that, yeah. that Greek word, I think is Kai. It's not a super specific, or at least uh, I, I don't know. I, I've tried to ask my friend who knows Greek, um, you know, how that word should be interpreted because it's interpreted differently depending on the translation. Maybe, maybe this is an obvious thing, but I just, I don't know Greek. Right. But so forgive us as we forgive. It's, there's this continual element there of like forgiveness it comes into me and then goes maybe past there. And I mean, so, I mean, looking at this as a, as a chiasm. And, and also perhaps the other way. Yeah. That the degree to which you, because Jesus seems to indicate in other places that the degree to which you forgive others is the degree to which you will You will receive. be forgiven. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, seeing this, this whole pattern of, of this narrative, so, I mean, you start in you know, considering Father in heaven like this, this the most abstract. I mean, heaven is, is as far away as you can get from here. Yeah. Right? And our Father, it's like the source of everything. So just begin to meditate on like this total abstract, you know. Sounds like you're doing Lexio Divina on the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, I, maybe I am. I'm trying to. Yeah. Um, and and then you know, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. So we're we're gonna stay there and just focus on how far away that ident or that that being is from me. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to gradually make our way from there to me. And so it's our Father, our heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this stepping yeah. forward of, of, I want that identity to come down here into me. Yes. And then thy will be done is a more active, that's the kingdom in action, thy will. Yes, yes. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we've actually, now we're yeah. beginning to think about earth again and heaven is coming here. And then it seems to me that, you know, giving us our daily bread, I mean, that maybe is, is more difficult to unpack, but I mean, based on, I feel like the kind of symbolic stuff that Peugeot has, has helped me to begin to learn to digest. I, I think you could think about bread. I, I guess actually I've read um, his brother's book, Matthew. Matthew, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he talks about bread being like the structure or the, uh, the almost like the wisdom. Like the, the bread is, is like a, a mold or something like that. It's like it, it's the with, with, contrasted with wine. Wine is like just pure potential, whereas bread is is the the form. 
maybe if if it's also the fact that i mean it's bread too which which is food <laughs> food and the fact that part of who we are is our biological nature right. and that uh, we need to you were probably brought up in a tradition where you said grace for your food yeah. it's the same kind of attitude which is to be to remember to show reverence for the fact that that aspect of you um, is um, is being addressed and I mean so Jesus is talking to people where food is precarious and and so he's trying to remind them that because we forget when like the things that make us most the most selfish I would argue are pain and hunger and we can forget the pro to enter in the right relationship with um, with that part of ourselves when it's under risk. This is in, in, in cognitive science, it's called scarcity mentality. When people feel that their uh, some important resource is scarce, they lose cognitive flexibility, they become much more self-centered, their ability to empathize with other people goes down. And perhaps, I'm not saying this is a soul yeah. reading, but perhaps one of the reading is, is to remind everybody, right, to get back to a place where instead of this being something that divides us from God and from each other, instead it can be a place mm. where we can come together. And that would then overlap perhaps with the Catholic idea of the Eucharist and the bread being where we come back to God and we come mm -hmm. to each other. I don't know. I'm just offering that as a, right. as a yeah. thought. No, that, I think that, that is helpful. And, and yeah, because like on, on some level, it's like, and it is a very symbolic thing. It's like, okay, so I need bread because it actually makes me into myself. Yeah. And so in a, in a certain sense, it's like, very practically it's bread participatory right right, right? you know yeah. it by becoming it and yeah and, and you're remembering yourself into your community yes well, exactly that. which I, I i think we should think about community language a little bit too but I, I know i've been thinking about this very personally like okay god coming down to me but i mean the, the prayer is not is not a, a singular like single person prayer it's, it's no. always us right? yes and so it's very much focused on the participatory Yes, very much, very much, very much. So, so, but anyway, so we we got to bread, and it's like within the context of like this, you know, this ground of being maybe coming down to us, or maybe ground of intelligence. I'm, I'm not sure if that language can map. But that's that's it. That's it. I mean, there's there there is some deep relationship between the ground of being, and and your biological grounding, right? And yeah. seeing them in relationship to each other, um, and like you said, the fact that it's give it give us. Mm -hmm. this day right our daily bread right and but it's it's in the context of this this path walking from the center of of like what we want to be the the telos of everything of like god of we want we want to get to god or we want god to come here we want there to be you know a fitted relationship between god and man and we and we also go the other way we use hunger metaphors to talk about the lack of that right i mm -hmm. hunger for this Mm. Uh, and Blessed we, are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So we you know, we get down to bread, and then it's I think right after bread is is then forgive us as or so that or and then we will forgive others. Yeah, for me that uh, maybe that's what you is where you connected to the Namaste. Yeah, but it's it's that, and you're right the the. The Greek makes it difficult in places, um, but there, it's. 
I hesitate to to I, like I'm not a Christian, so I hesitate <laughs> to be doing this. Uh, but I mean, I I, I I like I regularly I'm regularly I do Lexio Divina on the New Testament as one of my readings. Uh, Which just just to clarify, ex- like exactly what is that Lexio Divina? Is oh, that- so Lexio Divina is a way. It, I, I'm sorry. Uh, Lexio Divina is a way of reading a text, not to be informed by it, but to be transformed by it, by emphasizing not consuming uh, the the sort of propositional content, but letting it mm. speak to you, resonate within you, so mm. that you can be transformed by coming That's, into the the yeah. presence of the perspective that it is that it is offering. Yeah. So it's more like reading a text, like the way I'm trying to come into right relationship with you right, right. now. Yeah, I, I, that was, I mean, the the reason I started reading books again, I mean, this is a, probably a big statement, but it's just because I listened to Jordan Peterson doing that. Yeah, He was reading, you know, th- these various classics, like, or in, in, even like historical stuff or semi-historic, I mean, the Gulag Archipelago and various, I mean, talking about old creation myths and various mythologies. It was just suddenly I was like, there's something real there that's worth investigating. And so I began to listen to like, I found Norse mythology really interesting. Yeah, it's powerful. And I mean, especially the the, the Christian overlaps too with like stuff like there being a, a, a tree of life at the center and and that the 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 God, like the highest God in order to like achieve a higher sense of Godhood has to hang himself on that tree. Oh, and it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, I, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, but yeah, like learning that you can engage with, with poetry and with texts not as something to be consumed. Well, I mean, maybe it is. I mean, in terms of this bread thing, it's like you want to consume it so then it transforms you and you become well, it. Well, uh, Augustine says something really interesting about that. And I think Dionysus says something at the same time. Um, when we consume physical food, it becomes us. But when we consume spiritual food, we become it, uh, which is really, really interesting. So when you're reading the Lexio Divina... Isn't it a sense, I mean, in both of those cases, isn't it some, some of both? I, I, I mean, it is. You're obviously taking in the meaning of the text. But what you're trying to do is, and this is very Socratic for me, you're trying to realize what you're missing and what you're not getting. So when you're doing Lexu, like, you're, like you'll, you, you actually chant the text, you let it reverberate. You, what's it provoking in you? What's it, what's it evoking in you? Mm-hmm. What perspective are you invoking when you do this chanting and relating to it? Like it's almost like you're, like if you're reading Plato, you know, Socrates is becoming present for you when you're doing right. the Lexio Divina, or if you're reading, you know, you know, Paul in the New Testament, like you, you do that the power of that particular perspective. You're trying to presence it, and then what is it? What is it calling forth to you? How is it challenging you? Yeah, and and so. Um, Yes, and some you're still hearing, you're still learning, you're st- and so there is that yeah, that consuming like food, but it's much more uh, other directed. It's much more about um, not how can I get the information, but how can I conform to this and be transformed right. by coming into relationship to it. And the way what you're doing right now, like the way you're like you're doing like the the, the four stages of lectio divina are lectio, you read it. And then, like you said, meditatio, you're reflecting on it. And then oratio, what, how are you responding? What do you want to say in response okay. to the text? And then contemplatio, you, you, a period of silence, where you let it work on you rather than you work on it. Mm. It sounds to me you were doing that with the Lord's Prayer. That's, that's what it sounded like to me, at least. That's, I mean, that, I, I like, I, I mean, that, that's sort of an intuitive practice 
in a lot of community. I mean, that's sort of what happens at a book club. In, in a lot of cases, I mean, if it's pr- probably, you'll settle on that pattern regardless of whether you plan it or not because it's just, it's so, it, it works so deeply. And it, probably if you don't have, if, if you don't implement that pattern in your book club, it probably won't last very long. I don't yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, man does not live by bread alone, right? Uh, and so coming into relationship with the logos and and letting it take on a life of its own, and that's what I'm also doing in the work I'm doing on dialectic and dialogos, yeah. it, 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 that's something that you see many, many wisdom traditions have a way of, of doing this, they, right? Um, and, and so, like, the, uh, the, the, what you're doing, like, with the Lord's Prayer, think about how, how familiar that is. I mean, I grew up hearing it every day, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yet, I'm trying to bring it back to that analogy of, you know, your own consciousness or the or your beloved, very familiar to you, but you can get trapped in that. You can get really readily trapped in that and lose, mm. lose the uh, lose the openness to the depth. And that, to me, seems to be. I mean, it's sort of meta because that seems to be part of what the prayer is about, in the sense of. All that, right, good point. Exactly. There's that. There's a constant remembering, constant opening. Right, yeah. and I mean, there's the forgiveness of sins. Yes. Or there's a forgiveness of of constricting yourself to a pattern of life that is not fitted to where you know the next step of where you're going, or even maybe was never fitted to. To I mean. Well, no, I mean, I, I think probably most patterns of what you might call sin, and maybe we can get into a conversation yeah, about yeah. sin later, but w- would have to do with being hyperfitted to a particular mode of being. Or fixated on it. It was yeah. maybe better. Yeah, and uh, so I often play with the word forgiveness, and like you, I struggle to understand what it means, and I, not just conceptually, but to such that I can realize it in my real relationships. Um I, I, I sometimes play with it in, in, in this notion of forgiving, like giving before. Right, right? yeah, right. that's exactly the language I landed on when, I mean, with this conversation with my friend about forgiveness. So, yeah. Sorry, I didn't interrupt. No, 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 we're, we're not, you didn't interrupt me. We're <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, the, so forgiveness is to open that doorway that I just mentioned, that portal, right? So that a new way of being for both people, let's say there's two people involved in the situation, is made possible and affordance now is there. Right. Now that doesn't mean the other person's going to respond and it doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, be in charge of it or anything like that. But what it means, at least to the degree to which I understand it, what it means is ex- exactly that, is, is it's a deep remembering, a deep profound remembering of how much this is beyond whatever story or script we've brought to the situation. Even mm-hmm. if you have been legitimately wronged by another, claiming that you have like the role. So I am the victim, you are the villain, and that we've assigned these roles and these assigned, and that's all there is to it. This is a particular bias, the narrative yeah. bias. That's what you have to let go of, and you have to say there's so much more going on here. That Even if that were a valid framing of a particular set of events. It's still insufficient because those, I mean, 
Think about like, when, when we do history and we think we know the story. We know the story of the Battle of Waterloo, do you? There's historians that continue to write huge books on this. Yeah. We think we know the thing. And even if that story is sort of right, that doesn't mean it's taking us, as we said, to the depths. And it's the same kind of thing. Can I remember? Can yeah. I deeply, profoundly remember? And yeah, so it's a, like, like that practice you were guiding me through earlier. It's like, you know, all these little moments, my attention ran off like, oh, I hope the camera doesn't doesn't, yeah. <laughs> doesn't stop working or I got to make sure, did I actually press record? I mean, my, my attention yeah. ran off and it's like, the, those are not invalid thoughts. I mean, those are important things yeah. for this moment. Yeah. But I had to take that attention and kind of- Great, excellent, yes. Remember it back to the center of my being. Exactly, exactly. And, and so what you're trying to do is always calibrate what you find salient uh, to what is most deeply going on in the situation. And that's, that's sort of the core of wisdom. Yeah. And that's very easily said, and it's very difficult to do. And it takes a lifetime of practice to get like any sense of what that really means. I, w- I want to get back to forgiving, but I, while we're right here, I thought this would be a great time to pull this out because I told you that I got here and I had forgotten to bring the power cable for my, yeah. for my little yeah. audio unit there. And I was like, oh. This is horrible, but okay, at least I have an extra hour here to go and figure things out. I was able to run down to an electronics store, and on my drive there, I don't know why, why I framed the scenario this way, but suddenly I was, I was just thinking, like, this is, this is like a, a hero's journey. Like, I've just had a moment. I, now, I, now, now, oh, there's, wow. now there's a, now there's yeah. a golden, there's a, what's the goblet? The um, Holy Grail? Um, the holy, there's a Holy Grail of what I need, right? And I need this cable, and I hope I can find this cable, because I need this cable. <laughs> And it was, and I had this moment of like, sort of deconstructing that moment after that. And I was like, okay, but there's no true holy grail. Yes. There's no final, you know, yes, like I, I'm gonna the best I'm gonna find, and what I actually need right now is to find a cord, a cable that appropriately is fitted to yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that unit. Yeah. So I, I found actually two cables. I and this is the other one I got, and it's, it's coily, right? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't have to be that way. I have the other one over there isn't coily, so there's not. I I didn't need a particular cord. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah. There's there's even a spectrum within what could could appropriately fit this moment and play the part that I needed to to be that holy grail and for me to get this thing that I needed. Oh, there's a bit of a play on words here. You didn't need a particular cord. You just needed to be in accord with the situation. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I even I even could get one that is uselessly, I don't know, <laughs> for some reason, coily like this. There's, there's a, but, but I was able to find that, and, and, and now, you know, but I needed to get past that, and like once I'd found the cord, you know, now my life, my journey in life is not still just about finding that cord. I found the thing that was fitted, and this isn't the, final, this isn't the last thing I'm going to need to go on a journey to get either, Yeah. right? And it's, it's just, okay, so now I've, I've got to bring my attention back to that center, and I, I was trying even to think about why, I mean, maybe we can just quickly come back here for a second because why, why do you have to do that physically? I mean, in the exercise that we just did, you, you do this forward, backwards, left, right. Oh, because well, uh, again, this is what I was talking about, about the emphasis of the bread and the embodiment. Um, and this is one of my criticisms of historical Christianity. And I'm not saying all Christians are like this because we've already talked about this, but there has been, there has been a tendency to disparage the body. Um, and you and, and to be, you see this also in the yeah. Neoplatonic tradition. I mean, it got extreme in Gnosticism and, and you know 
the apostolic Christians pushed, pushed back on that and said, no, the material world is good in some way. But nevertheless, you know, we've, and then this, that, that sort of the body is not sort of central and this becomes like prominent in the Cartesian frame of the scientific revolution. The, the, the body is just sort of this um, clay that the, you know, the immaterial mind, the immaterial mind is self-enclosed and it's, right, I, right? And all it does is move the clay of the body around. Or, or this modern framework of like being, uh, the brain being like a, a robotic piece of hardware and then there's consciousness exactly. running on it. Exactly. And so what, what's happened in what's called 4E cognitive science, yeah. the, one of the E's is embodiment. Um, and, I wrote and, these down earlier. I was listening to you on the, on yeah. the way here. I was listening to you talk about 4E, but I, okay. Well, I'll just, I'll briefly list them. There's the idea that the, of embodiment, um, enacted, extended, embedded. Um, I would, I would also probably add uh, ecstatic, that it's constantly in development. Okay. Um, ecstasis originally means to stand beyond yourself. Okay. Um, but the, the point about the embodiment is there is your ability. Notice how I'm even going to be invoking the very thing I'm talking about. Your ability to move around in thought space is exapted from your ability to move around in physical space. So when you move from, I mean, Barbara Tversky uh, has a book called something like Mind in Motion. Okay. But the areas of the brain that we use in order to move, look what I'm doing with my hands, yeah. right? Right, the gesture. All of that machinery, I'll just use that as a word. Some people don't like it when I talk <laughs> sure. that way, but right? But you're, you're, it, what's happening is, so just to be quick, like exaptation. So my tongue originally evolved for taste, poison or food. Yeah. And for moving, and and I noticed the other day, like the very tip of your tongue seems it's like you taste sweetness there first, right? Yeah, yes, so is, yes. is sweetness like that's a, that lets you know that maybe no other bacteria have gone there and started to rot yes, in the food yeah. before you got to it? Yeah, so it's a poison detector and a food detector, and um, but it's also flexible because it helps you with digestion by moving food around, right. and that's why many, many, many organisms have tongues, but mm. humans use tongues to speak. So the tongue did not evolve for speech, right? But so the what this is what's called exaptation. It, it was it was sort of like it's, it's called what preadaptation. The speech machine didn't have to be designed from scratch. There was a lot of potential there ready that could be utilized for this function of speech. So right. That's exaptation. And so you and I, the embodiment thesis is is basically we are constantly exapting our sensory motor engagement with the world into our more, you know, cerebral reflections on the world. And so notice what I was doing with my hands. I'm doing this, this loopy thing, because I'm trying to show you yeah. right, that I'm doing this with my thought, but this, but I'm, what I'm doing is... And you're not just doing it because like, oh, I, I need to do a visual aid. It's like, it's intuitive. You just naturally... Not only that, out of Susan Golden Meadow, if I, if I limit your capacity to engage in gesture, your, cognition, your cognitive performance will decline. Wow. So if, if, you, if I spend too much time sitting like this... It has an effect on your cognition. And notice what I just said, by the way. If I limit your use of right. gesture, your performance right. will decline. Go, mm. where's that? That's a movement in space term. Do you see that? It, right. But I'm using that to express an abstract change mm -hmm. in a property. Right. Even, it, even you said, so 
ecstasis a second yeah. ago, right? It's, yeah. And that totally links up to our discussion about identity, right? Identity being this this static set of, of yeah, yeah. descriptive propositional terms about you. And ecstasis is breaking past that. And, yes, and, yes, moving right? past it. And so we have, you know, we have a breakthroughs and going forward and not for, right. Uh, right, right. and we have, so the, the, the idea then is that bringing in the body is actually central to understanding right. cognition. So one of the way, one of the dimensions of participatory knowing is that you don't just, you, you don't just think a thought, you, you, you embody it, you participate in it, you, you're enacting mm. it. Okay. So, so, you, so you the know reason it, these you know four E's are important is because those are actually the, like when we're, when we're engaged with an idea we're embodying it potentially, we're enacting it, yes. where it's being embedded or we're being embedded within it. I don't it's, the embedded it, the, part. The idea reflects the way in which you are embedded in your temporal and okay. physical environment. So it's like context. So Yeah, so notice the circle you just drew there. Yeah. <laughs> you drew there, you drew that because we're sitting at a table. And right. so the table is, we table things. Right. And so the table is the tabling, and then you drew this little circle right. here because the table is there, and it affords you conveying a kind of precision of so the meaning. It's like there's different levels of, of consciousness. There's the consciousness of us in this room. There's the yeah. consciousness of me and my body. There's the consciousness of maybe maybe a more like abstract me in, in, inside of my body. Yeah. And what's sorry? What's the last one? Embodied, embedded, enacted, and, and extended. Extended, so okay. who's doing the conversation right now? Me or you or us together? Right, right. So that was, I was missing one step in that journey. This is like layer number three. So you and I together, and this is one of the goals of Dialogos, you and I together, turn this on while you're yep, you and I together are creating a dynamical system that is creating this. So you, you asked me earlier about what is a characteristic of a really great conversation when I, because I ask people this, because I do work on this, and one of the defining features is the conversation takes on a life of its own, and we get to places we never thought we would go to. That's extended cognition, and notice how meaningful that is. Notice how now, now imagine what would happen to your sense of meaning in this room if that extended cognition was removed, right? And this conversation didn't have that. Your embodiment, your enacting, all of that was taken away. Yeah, it becomes so cold and dead, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, one of my favorite things that C.S. Lewis wrote is his. Um, I, no, I mean, it's not actually one of my favorite things, but one of what what of the images that he painted that has really stuck with me. Anyways, this was a really powerful read for me last year. The Pilgrim's Regress, mm. and he, the main character John, <laughs> <laughs> has this experience where he goes to this mountain, um, and there's like this. I think the mountain is alive or something. It gets kind of abstract at this point and, and he gets there and, and it's like, as he goes to the top, things are just becoming less themselves and becoming yep. this static nothingness. And he becomes, he begins to like look at himself and he, he's not seeing himself. He's seeing meat and bones and everything around is becoming just nothing but sort of material. And yep. the identity is just Flattening, flat, yeah. uh, flat ontology, yeah. It's like, and gray for some reason, that seems to be the color everybody thinks of within, when you get into that frame of mind. Because it reduces depth perception. Hmm. Right, there's there's no distance, there's no... It's harder to pull out depths, yeah. That's why we don't like twilight also. 
because neither the rods or the cones in our eyes are working at their optimal. So the twilight zone, Rod Serling, because that- Oh, that, interesting. That's, yeah. Wow. That's the worst time for us. <laughs> but yeah, so, so there's this- but that brings up something, if you don't mind me saying yeah, something. No, no. So there's, a, uh, Shafiro talks about this in his book, The Universe of Things, and he's, he's citing a science fiction story, and I can't remember the, the author. She's a really good author. She wrote a science fiction story, The Universe of Things, and it's about this guy, a mechanic, and he has exactly the opposite of of, uh, of Lewis's uh, Pilgrim's Regress. He's working in his shop, and the the embodied, extended, pre- the almost li- life of everything starts to become so present to him, and it's horrific because he right. doesn't have he doesn't have the mental framework to process right. it. So there's there's horror on, like both ways. Yeah. You see. Yeah, and that sounds so much like Lovecraft's like moon. There, thing too, uh, yeah, right? there is a Lovecraftian element to it, uh, and in in the sense, you know, the way you know the, the Lovecraftian gods are just incomprehensibly vast. They're yeah. they're combinatorially explosive like to use, use language. Yeah, and 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 great art. Um, you know, Rilke said something like. Be, there's a line in the elegies where it says something like beauty is, is terror that we're just able to accept something like that. Interesting. That's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think I, I had another really, really fantastic conversation this year with somebody I recently met, um, JF Martel. And if you haven't, he has got this, sh- this short book called reclaiming art in an age of artifice. I think, oh, I think you'd really I, enjoy it. It's yeah. I think book. I would. Um, but I mean, he, 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 he gave me, he kind of started me on that journey of just thinking about, Art and I began to engage with more like classical composers and stuff like this. The music that I never would have listened to before, and then suddenly seeing guys tapping into this sense of mm. awe and, and wonder about the world, yes. and even oh, geez, I'm forgetting the composers. See, I, 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 obviously, I didn't li- grow up listening to a ton of, of classical music or anything like this, but there was one one composer that that he had mentioned in the book to listen to, who seemed to be really focused on that sort of horror but like beauty element of uh, and, right, and, and right. when I listened to his music within that framing it was like whoa right and, and I was able to enter into that that sense of the the fear of God almost like you know yeah the awe and the numinous um, to use Otto's uh, Rudolf Otto's sense yeah and and again awe well awe brings us again notice how we keep circling Plato talks about the yeah. circumambulation yeah. that's where Jung got it from by the way yeah. okay. um Back to awe because because I'm doing uh, I'm I'm studying awe both with colleagues of mine um, Brian Ostafan and also Jennifer Steller and M- Michelle Ferrari and Jin Sung Kim running experiments and reading about it. But awe is really interesting because awe I would argue uh, awe is a, is an extended form of wonder, a deep form of wonder, and wonder and curiosity are very different. Um, people confuse those two together. What's interesting about awe though is people's sense of self. They, they feel their sense of self shrinking. Now, normally when people feel their sense of self shrinking, that's terrifying. And if you push awe too far, you'll get horror. Right. But what people like with awe is that diminishment because what it does is it, right, it reorients them to reverence and a sense of connectedness to something that has a reality and existence beyond, right, beyond them. Right. right. Well, so... And maybe this even connects to what you mentioned a second ago about twilight. How does that connect to this uh, namaste, like Eastern notion of, of of the light that is within me exists in you? But that's and, that. Uh, you also find that you find that in the West. Um, okay. So um, 
there's, I mean, you find it clearly in certain versions of Gnosticism. Gnosticism isn't like, like, Gnosticism wasn't like its own, well, there were some, the Sethians, right? But Gnosticism is more a style of religious behavior and spiritual okay. behavior rather than like a particular church or... And the uh, the I, the central identification of that style is like that it, it, it tends to be about... Gnosis. Yeah, which can you... I, I mean, I listened to you talk about this in your lecture series, but I still can't lay out what Gnosis means. But that's why I brought it up. Gnosis is the light within you recognizing the light within something else. So is that deep calling out to deep? Yeah, like in the Psalms, very much. And so the Gnostic myth, and 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 you know, I, my my attitude, I'm very I, recovering Gnosis is very important for me and other people. I'm I'm not particularly uh, wedded, and that's sort of a Gnostic joke. I'm not particularly wedded <laughs> to the Gnostic mythology uh, because I I think it has you know I think it's sort of one of the grand er conspiracy theories of all time, and. And there's a danger for human beings, to, as, as we see right now, there's a danger for human beings to slide from spirituality into, uh, into conspiracy theory. Jules Evans, another philosopher that I've gotten to talk to, he, he sort of, he didn't coin the term, but he brought it back into prominence, conspirituality, uh, where, so you have to be careful. So let's- Like conspiracy, let, conspire? Well, yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the integration of spirituality and conspiracy theories. And Gnosticism, okay. their Gnosticism, as a historical phenomena, definitely has that strand in it. Right. But so, but the, what the Gnostics thought was that um, the God beyond the God beyond all gods. So the idea is the the, the gods, including the God of the Old Testament, which mm -hmm. is why there was tension with Christianity. Right. They they are actually running a prison, like in the Matrix. Right. But there's the God beyond. Right. Which right. with the God of, of light and love that has been disclosed in the New Testament. Now. Something happened, and there's different mythologies about that, and some of that, the light from that God has become trapped within us. And what we are trying to do is return, and that light is calling to what it, 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 to that to which it has ultimate affinity and allegiance, the light calling to the light. And so when you, so you are called to try and realize your light and to help, let that direct you towards the source of all light. I'm I'm speaking very mythologically yeah, here. Yeah, no, but it's landing for me. It feels like it's it's it's. Well, I mean, it feels very in line with with the kind of stuff that you and the rest of this community we've kind of talked about are are getting into, which is like an escape from the the constrictions of an identity. So this is exactly right, and this is why it's so close to the escaping from the the, the prison house that the conspiracy theory. Right, the, right, right, and Hans Jonas pointed that out um, in his book on uh, on the Gnostics about that. There's he found he found it very odd um, that there were deep similarities between ex, the, the great existentialist philosophers of of like the the forties and the fifties and the Gnostics, precisely because right of this you know uh, you know the no escape of uh, yeah. uh, uh, of existentialism, the fact that we feel right. We can feel very much trapped within, as you said, the identities and the worldviews. Right. And so Gnosis is to Gnosis is a, a, a to, is to participate in a transformative relationship to something. It's to know something not by how you have grasped it or how what you can get from it, 
but how the thing calls you to transformation, the light calling the light. So to read to which, like you, right here, this is Levinas, you are, call, you are putting an existential ethical call on me to face you, not as a frozen identity, but to try and open up to the depth and mystery that you are. And the only way I can do that is from my own depth and mystery. I have to participate in mystery to recognize mystery. I have to participate in light to recognize light. That's Gnosis. And the degree to which that participatory knowing leads me out of being entrapped, that's Gnosis. And so Namaste probably has an element of the light within me is recognizing the light within you, but helping to call out the light in you, and the light within you is helping to call out the light within. Right. You will be becoming yeah. more in touch with it by yes. interacting. And, yeah. and also the other, by right. becoming it's more in touch with it. Right, reciprocal opening, very much. Right. Yes. Okay, so it's love. <laughs> and of course it is. Right. So, right? Uh, and, 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 and the, right, and so you clearly see that in Namaste, that it has that aspect of love. And the Gnostics, right, all, they play, place a great emphasis on Gnosis, but the reason why they saw the New Testament as disclosing the the true God, the God beyond all gods, right, is because it's the it's the part of the Bible in which love, especially agapic love, is given prominence. Right. Well, I mean, and the way that you you outlined what what agape is, or a good way of thinking about it, anyways, in your series, I mean, that plugged right into my whole whole consideration, my meditation on on forgiveness. Right, or it's yeah. like it's exactly. It's, there, you can't separate agape because you're the, you're you're forgiving to the child before right. they're a person, right? right. And you and, and, and they are immediately indebted to you. Right. But in, but you have to take the attitude of no. But I am going to put myself in service to them. Right, and so you're being sort of awestruck by another person or entering into awe. And you, yeah, and, and so you, I mean, or seeing the they, awe. Yeah, but that's Within that's exactly right. Most people experience awe around the birth of their child, mm. uh, you know, and because it call because first of all you shrink the self because mm-hmm. you can't be egocentric when you have a child. Yeah. If you want to be a good parent, the child is the center. You're not the center, and that's easy to say. Try living that, man. That's really hard. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're and you're also opening up to because you 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 we we are so familiar to ourselves as persons we forget how. I wasn't, I, there, was a, there was a time when this biological being wasn't a person. How did this personhood emerge? And you're doing this with, right? You're doing right. this with this other being and they're not a person. They, they are in a moral sense, but I mean in their capacities as right. a person. And, and so you are, your sense of self is shrinking and you're opening up to the fact that you're participating in one of the great sort of mysteries, which is, when how do persons come to be and that they come to be within this process of agape right so okay i for some reason i'm i'm this i mean even just you brought up conspiracy theories and stuff like this brought up like you know and and conspiracy theories i think are very apropos to the moment we're in as well where it's well, like well they're they're growing in prevalence yeah be, and it's especially i think it's like it's it's inevitable because there are a lot of conspiracies, not necessarily of of you know Bill Gates or, or you know <laughs> evil masterminds, evil villains, but almost these just patterns of behavior that stack up into like a certain identity, 
And yeah, there, there's, to use St. Paul's phrase, there's powers and principalities. Right, exactly. Uh, you, you've got me here talking so Christian. <laughs> um, but the powers and principalities idea, <clears throat> and, and this lines up with, and I'm, I'm starting to explore this with Jordan Hall, but this, Tim Morton uh, wrote a really good book that I read with my, my, my dear friend and, and, and collaborator, Dan Chappie, called Hyper Objects. And so hyper objects, so let me give you an example. Uh, the one that Morton f- uh, focuses on in the book, uh, global warming. So you, like, you, you can't sort of like, well, there it is. You can't point to it as an right. object. Like it's not, right? It's, it, it's multiply realizable, but it's not off in distant abstract land because global warming is affecting us right in this room. It's it, like, it's right. It's, it's, yeah. it's right. The fact that it's so hot right now and the, right. And sure. the, 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 the weather is much more volatile in Toronto than it has historically been all of that. And that affected my getting here to see you. So I can't make it be abstract but I also can't grasp it. It takes hundreds of scientists and all of this, these Tracks, computers yeah. to track it. So there's yeah, these yeah. hyper objects. But the point about that, and Morton's point is, global warming isn't the only hyper object. Evolution's a hyper object. We are surround, and what we're doing with, with, for example, the internet is we're creating massive hyper objects. We're, so we're setting in, into we're, right. we're or at least we're. we're beginning to be able to engage with hyperobjects that, well, I guess we are creating new ones, but we're also beginning to have access to hyperobjects that we didn't have access to before. And so we have lots and lots of principalities that are evident and, and right in front of us. And it's so difficult to process what they are because they're, 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 be, they're hyperobjects. They're beyond right. objection. And COVID's been another one. Right. And so it's like, how, how do I process what COVID is? Well, it's obviously I need to have, in order, I mean, I have to fit it into what I can conceive of as a narrative. Yes. And I mean, you have to do this for any object, for any anything that you want to to fit into your story. You have to compress it into a, a character within that story. Yes, and, and so, so so what kind of character is COVID? Well, it's invisible. Yeah. It's ubiquitous. <laughs> it demands purity. It demands isolation, uh, and it can kill you unpredictably. It sounds kind of like an Old Testament evil deity, right? <laughs> and so people and other and Zach Stein and others you know, made this argument. I was making it too. Jules Evans was. People are were going to, and we actually predicted this right at the beginning of COVID. I said, you're going to see people turning to sort of Gnostic, conspiratorial uh, mythology, yeah. uh, trying to get a grip on this hyper object of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is necessary because it's such a salient object to try to get a grip on it and have some way of gripping with it because it's it's in your life is very relevant. Yeah, exactly. It's a hyper object. You can't dismiss it, but you can't grasp it. And so people are thrown back on to the kind of cognitive cultural grammar they typically use, which is mythological. And so, you know, the 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 question is, right? How do we get people? Sorry, this sounds this sounds arrogant. I don't want it to sound arrogant. It would be good if we could understand how we could guide people to the mythologies that lead to reciprocal opening, rather than to reciprocal narrowing and the idea that there's a conspiracy, right, uh, uh, in the more proper sense. And that's been a challenge because one of the things that um, one of the things that COVID did was 
increase the domicile, increase the sense of disconnectedness that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. right? And, and so people are hungering. That's why you see this bifurcation. You see people turning to conspiracy theories and all this other stuff because they're trying to get the connection back somehow. Mm-hmm. somehow. And on the other hand, you have a, this growing movement is what of, no, no, let's really understand meaning again. Let's turn back and reflect and discuss. That's why you and I are talking, right? right? And so it's a kairos, Right, that at a, a point where a, a, a point where things are complex and unstable, and actions can take it one way or the other. There's a there's a chance that in in complex system theory bifurcation, this system can go this way or this way, and we're radically at that point right now, a kind of tipping point. And so, I mean, where what what are the two directions? If if you can limit it down to two, are the two directions we're possibly going to go? I mean, you said is gnostic. gnostic Mythologization, a yeah, that's that's one direction. Yeah, into I mean, that. so I mean, there's historical. I would argue that uh, the Nazis are a response to an intensification of the meaning crisis and the collapse within the Weimar Republic, conspiratorial thinking, very Gnostic thinking, right? They even use terms originally coming from Gnosticism, like master race, mm-hmm. and they're affected by Blavatsky, who's also like, right. I don't want to do the whole occult history of the Nazis, but sure, sure. if you think of the Nazis only as a political movement, you're not understanding them, right? right? And so, and I'm not saying that everybody who's conspiratorial is a Nazi, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we've seen in the past that when the meaning structures collapse and people feel, right, there's a scarcity, right, that you do in the Weimar Republic, they turn, that one thing they turn to is this kind of conspirituality. Um, so that's one direction. And I think, so, I, I think it's fair to say, not, not that it would be an exclusive explanation, but it's part of what's going on in the United States. Like, this is, there's a, there's, and, uh, and there's a battle of conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. uh, left and right, right, and, and all of that's going so on. So when, when you're put into a situation where your world obviously doesn't make sense, like you're just, your world as in like you, the landscape of, of data being, of, of what is available to you, it's just way too big of a circle to square. Then, then Gnosticism is like one of the, inevitably it's one of the most useful tools from that position maybe, or, or like, what, why, why do we get to Gnosticism from there? Well, because, I, I mean, like, the, the sense, there's an inner and outer explanation. The outer explanation is, is the, the sense of being trapped, right? That existential sense of, so I talk about, you know, the, the, the sense of being existentially ignorant, existentially inertia. I, like, you, that's why people go into therapy. Like, I, I, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. There's a stuck, this sense of stuckness, right? I don't know how to go forward. I, there's inertia, and I, and I don't know what's going on. There's this kind of deep ignorance. Uh, and, and those two together can give you a sense of existential entrapment. And so try, trying to find something that will free... So it's very easy to think that you're in a prison when you feel that existential entrapment, right? right? The, uh, the inner reason is... And this one's more controversial, and I'm still reflecting on it, so I'm not completely happy with what I'm going to say, but there's something to Jung's idea about because we're seeking Gnosis in our relationship to our deepest self, Mm -hmm. right, that Gnosticism is kind of like the default spirituality of human beings, that if you... Because it's the... 
it's just based around this simple story of that I'm trapped in a certain scenario, but that's not all there is, and I need to escape. And this scenario is sort of, or this narrative that's not the correct or not the real, or this God that's ruling my life is not the true God. Yeah, but but there's more to it. But that's right. But think about the relationship. So let's say there's some tr- deep truth to the psychodynamic approaches of Freud and Jung. Uh, you know, 95% of Freud, what Freud said was false, but it doesn't matter. He gets to be in the hall of the mortals because the, the, the things that he said were so important. And here's the idea. Your conscious mind is not all of your mind. So right. think about, think about, think about how Gnostics this feels. Your conscious mind, but there's this unconscious unknown around it that's affecting your behavior and limiting you and making you do crazy things. <gasps> do you see? And so there's... There's both inner and outer reasons why Gnosticism right. is very attractive for us. Now, and, I would say the response, the proper response is not to give in to the Gnostic mythology, but to cultivate a profound 4E understanding of Gnosis. But f- so 4Es, I mean, you even possibly introduced a, f- a fifth E. The ecstasis, right? yeah. So doing that is it? It's it's a new... It's maybe a... A plug, yeah, maybe yeah. a cable. It's it's not that that those four E's are not necessarily the entirety of existence. No, no, right? no. It's this is at least a better model, a more engaged, a more embodied. Oh, a I would never claim it was to 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 say it, it, it's finished or complete or perfect. Right. Um, would would be a, a performative contradiction on my part. It would go against everything I'm arguing. Now that brings up something really important, though. That um, this is one of the areas where. I'm a more explicitly critical of uh, the Christian tradition and also the Neoplatonic tradition, even though I think of myself as a Neoplatonist, um, which is the idea of the sacred as perfect, the idea of perfection. And there's Mm. ideas of perfection, and then they have epistemological equivalences, the idea of certainty, because certainty is perfect knowledge, knowledge that can never be lost. It's final, it's complete. And these notions of the sacred as also perfect um, I think are are things we now there are there are aspects within the Christian tradition where the sacred is not understood that way, uh, but this notion of perfection and it, it's in the heart of Descartes too. He uses the notion of perfection in his proof of the existence of God. So mm. there's deep connections between Descartes' commitments to perfection and certainty, and we have come to realize. I would argue, we come to realize that the pursuit of certainty is largely quixotic. We shouldn't be doing it. And, and, and sorry, this is not a radical thing to say within the last sort of. Wait, sorry, so what, what is quixotic? The, the pursuit of certainty. The pursuit of certainty. Yeah. What, what? I, I mean, we read Don Quixote last last yeah. year together. That's. I mean, that he, he was so certain of, yeah, of yeah. <laughs> that those windmills were giants. He was so certain that that that, that you know herd of of sheep was a was an army, right? It's, but he was missing. In his moment, he was missing this sense of grand narrative in his life. And everyone around him seemed to want to take that away from him. Yeah, it's very much about people realizing that the mythological framework is going away. Now, what's interesting about Cervantes is is he clearly starts as satire, and then he falls in love with Don Quixote, right? right? And you can clearly see this. Uh, and, And that's part of the answer. The part of the answer, to take it back to the original point, is a view of the sacred that's more about falling in love 
than coming to completion. Do you want to come to completion in your romantic relationships? Do you want to come to completion or perfection right. in your friendships? No, because that is not the appropriate relationship to the nature of the reality. That is the ultimate nounifying and forgetting the verb. Right. That's, I, I just, yesterday, I just finished beating a video game. Yeah. It's done. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and that's the sort of disappoint. I mean, there is a part of part of me that likes to be able to say, "Oh, I can put that back into the shelf and say I completed that, I did it." <laughs> yeah. Right, but that's the more. I mean, there, there's an opening that happens when I get to do that because now, oh, now there's all these new things that are open to me. I could go read a new book. I could yeah. watch a new movie or whatever. But I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, so there, there is something that's freeing about sort of closing a chapter in your life, even with a relationship to somebody. Anyway, sorry, I, I don't want to go. That was an interesting thought, but I don't want to go down that trail. I, I, I did want, I noticed this is maybe a, a good kind of pivot point sure. in our conversation, though, because you started to point out some something that you're critical about even within the Neoplatonic yep. tradition as well as Christianity. But I want to make sure before we get into, into trying to maybe def, defuse yep. our, our spiritual, because I feel like what we've done so far is talk about some great ways in which we can enter into all these different spiritual perspectives and, and spiritual mythologies and philosophies from many different cultures and, and moments in time and people groups and seeing wh where's some central points that they're, that, that they're aiming at. And, and I mean, within Christianity and Buddhism, and maybe we kind of hit this already with the Neoplatonic tradition, there's this mm. sense of, of, of forgiveness of the light of the deep calling out to the deep and seeing the be, the yeah. uh, beyondness of the world. And that, yeah. that's, that's not, so maybe Gnosticism there, that's a connection. I, I was gonna, even when I was thinking about, I mean, I, I didn't want to just, you know, here's a set of talking points and let's talk through them. I wanted to just let this be a conversation and see where we would go. Uh, but I'm really appreciating that. I mean, and, and I'm not complaining. Uh, I, I'm not about what I'm going to say. I mean, I get lots of, uh, of these words, what is the meaning crisis, and and uh, you know, and what is relevance realization, and, and 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 those are legitimate questions. Again, I'm not I'm not complaining, I'm, but um, I'm enjoying this being a much more. Uh, this is much closer to dialogos. This is much more of a partnership where we're pondering and wondering together, and and, and that it's opening us up to real possibility in a real way. And I, so I'm just saying, I thank you for that. I appreciate that. I, I'm really thankful that you were willing to do this with me too. This is, this has been so, so, so fun so far, man. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So we, we've hit, hit on that, that, that there's, you know, sorry, I, I was just saying that I didn't want to do this in outline, but there was a few things I wanted to try to, of course, try, try to hit of course, and remember. Yeah. And so I wanted to see, okay, so a few connection points between Christianity and Buddhism and Neoplatonism. And I thought, okay, maybe the supernatural is, is a sort of idea uh, of a connection yeah, between yeah, Christianity and yeah. Neoplatonic. And, and, and that's a nice segue because there's there's deep connections between the notion of the supernatural and the perfect um, and the sacred and the ultimate. Yeah. And notice that we feel that those are all close to each other, but we're not really clear about the proper relationship. And... Um, I hope it's been apparent that when I use the word myth, I, I sometimes prefer to use the word mythos. I'm not meaning it as a, 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 a pejorative. It's yeah, yes. I'm trying to talk about, hopefully we can maybe talk about, I'm trying to talk about the, ima the imaginal augmentation of, of how we see reality so that we can see things that we otherwise would not see. Um, and so, so um, there is the attempt to give us guidance into how to relate to what ultimate reality, Paul Tillich calls faith ultimate concern for what is ultimate, um, mm -hmm. 
the attempt to give guidance to that, of course, has a history to it. Um, and I go into the history in the series, but the main idea is that history also is bound up with a mythos. It's bound up, we've talked about, with metaphor and imagery that's being exapted to try and give people a guidance uh, so that they can come into right relationship uh, with what is most real, within and without and between us, right? Um, and that involves... That, that, that involves a lot of language that's spatial in nature, like mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. Um, a, a sense of the more real is above, or it's above, so below, right? Yep. Or the also, or in time, it's in the future, the promised right. land, it's outside of the cave. Yes, outside <laughs> of the cave, Plato, exactly right. Coming out and coming up. Of course, it's important to remember that Plato saw it. It's just as important to go back down after you've seen the sun. The point is not to see the sun. The point right. is to see the sun and go back into the cave. Uh, but anyways, so all of those, the, the, and so, and think about even the word um, contemplation, temple, temple yeah. to look up into the sky. So we have a sense of, right, now we have two metaphors, and it's interesting because they play off against each other in weird ways. We have the sense that the more real is up. We also have a sense of the more real is below, like the, the foundations, profundity, mm-hmm. the depths. Well, uh, is it even, so you said con- contemplation that's temple. Is that the same? Is there an etymological connection there between like the tempest or temporal, like time? I don't think like, so. I think no? it has to do with, do, it has to do with looking for, the, the etymology that I'm aware of is to look to the skies for a sign from the gods. Right. That's well, the, but I mean like, the waters of chaos is like the tempest is like the, this is uh, like the chaotic beyondness or then, and then time in, again, in Matthew Peugeot's book, he talks about a deep connection between time as contrasted from space. Time is, is potentiality yes. and space is, is identity. I would disagree with that, but uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, space is properly understood as the uh, as the real potential for movement and things like that. So well, yeah, okay. I, I think he's he's specifically talking about it from he's saying like this is the way that yeah these, this is the way these words are being used in some of these ancient Hebrew texts. Fair enough, fair enough. And I and I haven't read Matthew's work, so yeah. I shouldn't criticize it out of ignorance. That's inappropriate. Right. But uh, the supernatural originally. The supernatural belonged to a bunch of other terms. So if you read uh, Dionysus, uh, the Areopagite, right? The, the supernatural goes with the supra-essential, the superintelligent. It just, what it pointed to originally was the supra-above. Mm-hmm. Here's that language. But what it pointed to was an idea taken from Neoplatonism. And it's, it's clear that that's where it comes from, although there's mythological uh, uh, precursors. The principle of intelligibility and the principle of things is not itself intelligible or a thing. This is the idea. Say that one more time. Yeah. Well, let, well let's say it and try and unpack it. Okay. So let, let, let's, let's, let's use, like, so what is it to understand, right? Stand under. Right. Yeah. But what it, what it is, is here's a bunch of things. And I find something that stands under them. It, originally, by the way, it was understand what what is between them all. Oh, interesting. But we've okay. now made it understand because we have the notion of substance, that which stands what? under. Okay, so I've understood these things. I've understood all of these because behind, uh, underneath them, or if you want, above them, is an underlying unity. Right. 
and these things are unity. But then these things also have a, and then when I get to, so there's something that is the source of all of this unification potential, all of this intelligibility. The but, universe. <laughs> well, no, well, yeah, but we say the universe, and that's the idea that there is an ultimate, the physicists want the equation that they can put yeah. on their T-shirt. And is the reason, okay, but, but if it's a universe, is verse, does that have to do with speech again? Is it like there's a logos at the top of? Yeah, so very much. The idea is uh, logos is to gather together so that things belong together. That's what okay. you're doing in understanding. And what I'm trying to get you to see is there is nothing in terms of which you can understand the source of intelligibility because to understand is to bring it into unity, but it in itself is, it's like the big bang of understanding. Right. Does that make sense as a metaphor? This is a, this is a, this is a tricky thing to get to. But I, let me, let me see, uh, let me talk back to you and see if I'm on the right track anyways. Um, so Okay, maybe even again. This is a very. Yeah. I'm thinking about this now. You know, there's the true. I mean, th this is a this is something. This is an example of the of the true cord. Yes. Yes. The true cable. Yeah. But I mean, this is this is real. But it's not. It's not that thing. So how are you understanding it? What are the principles that are allowing you to understand it? So it's got a certain shape. Um, you can. Uh, it's got a structural, functional organization, as right. I like to say, <clears throat> and you have one, and that can enter into a relationship. So you you notice you have things, and then you explain them in terms of principles about how they are organized. Is that okay? And then you have principles for explaining those principles until you get the principle that is explains everything from which all possible explanation comes. But there is nothing in terms of which you can explain it. There's nothing other behind than, it. Other than everything, I mean, other than everything just being all unified in that. Right. Whatever it so is. So you can see it, you can see everything as asymmetrically dependent on it. You can see how everything comes from it, or to use the Neoplatonic idea, everything emanates from it and everything returns to it. When you're trying to make sense, you can see how everything derives from it, and then you can understand uh, everything by how things are unified back towards it. Mm -hmm. So there. But, but there's nothing, notice, we, notice what we're doing in understanding. We're getting behind things to a principle, which mm -hmm. is not a thing, in order to explain them. But, but there's, a, there's, something, there's something even behind all the principles. It's not even a principle because it makes, you, it makes it capable for you to understand the principles. So, I mean, to follow this pattern up that tree a little bit, because yeah. maybe just doing this journey might help a little bit. So it's like, so beyond, so I mean, there's, there's features, there's things, there's structural functional organization to this, this cable. Right. There's, there's so, curliness, but then beyond that, there's the more broad category of just things that can do this, go from here to here, right? But, but there's also, okay, there's, there's space, time, energy, matter. Right. Now, what's behind all of those? Because they're all coordinated together. Coordinated. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, again, I, th I think we're jumping to the end uh, end of the story. I, I want to walk there for a second. So, so like, so energy can can pass through this. Yeah, this is, can hold on to time. And so then, th there's a more broad category of things that can sort of be and can 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 have energy pass through them and yep. can participate in a story. And then there's so I mean that would maybe that would include me and you. Yeah. Yes. You and participate then, in space and time and matter and energy. You don't know them as objects over there. You participate in them. And they, they make you possible. And participation is maybe 
even more fundamental than that is, yes. is like, I mean, Gilchrist talks about that being like the nature even of thingness is, is relationship. Yes, right? very much. It's like, so you, you go back and it's like, okay, so beyond all that we have like love maybe is one of the highest and most broad abstract things we can conceive of, but then there's something maybe even beyond love. Well, I, I mean, is that the supernatural? Is the well, what I was trying to get at, uh, uh, there's a, I, I, yeah, I, I, so the, uh, the ultimate in Neoplatonism is the one, right? Which is not a thing. It can't be a thing because it's, it's even, nothingness. It's no thingness. Yes, yeah. because principle. Look, like, like, like let's let's use a good uh, species of principle, like uh, a law in physics. E equals mc squared. Relativity. It's 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 the reality that makes atomic bombs possible. So you like it's a fundamental right. thing. Where is it? Where where is e, where is e equals mc squared? I can tell you where this bottle is. It's a thing. Right. Bottle's here. Spatial temporal location. There's events. Yeah. The bottle moved. Yeah. Where is e equals mc squared? Yeah. It's it's be, well because it's not really a thing. But right. it's but it's real, isn't it? Well, it's it's a thing in the same sense that it, it is fitted to doing a certain, participating in a story and engaging, embodying a certain action, well, a certain narrative. Or perhaps turn it around. Everything is participating in it. In E equals MC squared? Yeah, because everything is bound. E equals MC squared is a way in which reality is shaped. So there's a structural functional organization to the very possibility of things existing. That's not the structural functional organization of a thing but it's a structural functional organization. And these things are, in a sense, just instances or shadows of that deeper, deeper reality. And we're getting, we're, we're making our way towards the supernatural, by the way. Right, well, uh, you mean like as, a, as humanity or like written this conversation? In this conversation, what I mean is we are, we are getting, I, 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 <clears throat> I believe we're getting to the point where I can say, and then what you can do is you can try to create a mythological image for this ultimate. So let me try and give you, let's not do love, let's do, do, do justice, although you could do this with love as well. Okay. okay. Which in, 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 is funnily enough because those are sort of like components or for component processing of, of like the character of God, of like the love and the justice of God. Right? Totally, but I'm, do, I'm doing justice because it'll allow me- uh, Or sort of opponent processing, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, I think- You introduced me to last time. Yeah. So. Without uttering the word in your head over and over again, I want you to hold justice in your mind. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm imagining a judge in a gavel. There you go. So you turn to an image. Right. Somebody banging. Yeah. That's, that's one. Other people use, right, uh, the lady holding the scales. Mm. Lady justice, right? Now, do you care about justice? Yes. It's pro, you, and, and is it just over there or is it something you actually participate in? Right. Well, it's, again, it's, it's something that I can, I can manifest in a certain way, but I can't, I can't manifest the finality of it. Exactly. So what you do in order to hold it in mind, and you need to hold it in mind because you care about it and you want to be in right relationship to it, right, is you form an image. Now, what if people are trying to care about ultimate reality. This, this, and notice how our, we were stretching our thoughts to the very limit. They want to be in right relationship with that ultimate. They're going to form an image to hold it in mind and relate to it. But is, it, is an old man banging on a table justice? 
the judge with the gavel? Right. No, the, the, the image is not the thing. Right. right, right. But what does the image do? Well, the image enacts something. So what you're, so you're, sometimes people use balance mm -hmm. for justice. What, like, what do you, like, think of the gesture. What does this gesture mean of banging like that? Right. It's like, it means this is final. Like I'm, I'm setting this, like, this is the new way things are going to be now. Right. So the idea of judgment as, as a move, like decisiveness originally meant to cut with a sword. Right? right, right. So you're trying to you're trying to cut through everything yeah. and get to what really. And notice how people when people want to say something's real, they'll bang on the table. Right? It's that we're trying to get at what's really going on here. That's a notion of justice. And this is where it stops. This yes, is the end of this. Right, and, but right. The, that stop resounds, and every, so everybody can share in the decision. Notice right. how you're invoking all this embodied stuff. Right, it's yeah. embodied. Yeah, yeah right. To, okay, so now. What I can use is I can use spatial imagery in this way to try and allow me to hold in mind that which is above all things. It's not a thing. It's nothing that I can actually know because it makes all knowing possible, but it's not distant from me because it's in the very guts of my being a thing and my ability to know and my ability to relate. And so you think of things that are above nature as a way of imagining that. Right. And but, so, so that's, that's very fundamental to Christian. I mean, to, to a lot of religion, I'm probably, I mean, that seems to be almost the nature of religion, but Christianity's version of this is, is talking about God and God being this, you know, person, story, concept that is holy, holy, holy. That is, which, which is a, a, like a mystical tradition, right? Of the, it's, it's not holy or it's, it's not, it's God is holy. And then, Holy means like set apart. So you're going to yep. set apart again from that holiness to not right. that holy. No, and not even the holy that's set apart from that. It's it's three steps removed as holy as you could get. God, God, is, God is unnameable, right? right. Who are you? I, I am that I am. Or yeah. better, the verb, I will be what I will be, which is your right. attempts to name me are meaning that you're not in proper relationship to what I am, right? Um and, you know, in Jesus, you know, uh, who do you are? Well, who do people say I am, right? The answer is always, no, step back and reflect. Don't try and pin me down, but mm -hmm. step back and reflect on the very action of trying to do that. Okay, so the thing is, you can get locked into that and forget that it is a myth. And I'm meaning this in a deep sense, the way... The the image of the judge is a myth for justice. It doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean it's a false story. It's it's a way in which human minds can come into right relationship to a hyper object, right? Well, and it, it might be false given a different context, but it's like okay, this this story may be fitted to a certain scenario, but not fitted to another. In which case, it's false. Actually, I mean, I feel like in in British or like European vocabulary false like don't be false with me or yes like, yes true and troth have an true troth and trust have uh, trust a, a, according to some etymologies uh, an original so to be betrothed is to right to enter to be into truth okay yeah to be true to someone right and Are so you, don't be false so, okay so so being don't false bear false witness also right right go ahead okay so no so I, I just wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit further so it's a contrast to being true is being faithful being connected to continuity of contact so when you're true to someone it doesn't mean you have true beliefs about them it, or, or at least it's not reducible to that it means that 
you are going to uh, you're going to continually transform and conform so that you can uh, maintain a continuity of contact to their always unfolding reality. And that's that's why that's why we use verbs like falling in love, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So we have we don't want to have a false narrative because but, but narratives can be true and false on different levels and on different modes of levels of our being we, well yeah and we can we can notice how we keep coming back we can forget human beings can forget we can forget the origin of these words like supernatural mm-hmm. and we can forget with the forgetting of the origin and the embodiment within that we can we can we can forget the original functionality sorry i I know I've, I, I love, I get lost in all these rabbit trails about etymology, but we, we talk, you unpacked forgiveness yeah. and give and get would be, you know, like yep, I'm, different, I'm yes. giving or I'm giving or I'm getting. So why, why is forgive and forget? Why are they opposites? Uh, I mean, well, no. So th- that's interesting because the, 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 the I, I, not necessarily opposites, but different directions. Well, yeah, they are. And, and people put them together. Um, uh, I, the, the remembering that's in the forgiveness is the remembering of the moreness of the person and of the situation and mm-hmm. also of their suchness. Um, the, the forgetting is that I'm, there isn't forgetting in the Bible. Jesus doesn't say forgive and then for, for, forgive and then forget. Right, right. This is people, again, trying to use right uh, another aspect of our cognition, memory and forgetfulness, to explain, because they obviously don't mean forget the event, uh, because then they wouldn't have forgiven. Because mm-hmm. right, so what what they mean is, I, I think what they mean is, right, you're trying to make it, a, you're trying to allow it as if it had not happened. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. That's that's a rabbit trail. I don't, don't want to get, get stuck on that for too long. But 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 I mean, but that the. So, but maybe we can bring it back. Let me try. All right. (laughs) When, right, part of forgiveness is to forget in the sense of being fixated on a particular interpretation. But why is it getting? Like who's getting what? Um, so, so uh, I, I'd have to check the etymology. Um, I, 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 I think the idea of forgetting is to, is, um, I'm worried about doing a back, what's called back formation in etymology. Yeah, okay. uh, I do that a lot. <laughs> so I, I, I hesitate to speak. I, so I don't know about the specific etymology or the imagery, but I think that's what people were trying to convey. So if we return back to the discussion, um, what happens with the supernatural in the history of the West, of Christendom, and yeah. um, and 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 its tenuous family relationships with Judaism and Islam, because they're all the Abrahamic religions, um, is the supernatural goes from being everything we were talking about here to being. This is really hard to talk about, but it, it goes to being uh, reified into the idea that that's the way reality is ultimately like really structured. Um, it would be to think that justice is literally the the man or the woman banging the table with a wooden hammer, 
um, and that, right? And I, and so the problem that many people face, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, and others, is that this language is no longer relevant to them because they're living in a world that has been made one world, universe, mm-hmm. by science, and also, as you mentioned earlier, a world that has been flattened in its ontology. And so the idea of there being this other world that runs according to different... Like, that, what happened is the supernatural went from being the, the, the how we ascend to nothingness to just being another place, another place filled with other kinds of things. It's just, it, 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 just, it was just a mirror, all right, a more perfect version of this world. Right, it where became it like fairies and angels. And all whatever. right, and so it's not. It it, it loses the no thingness. It loses the, the 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 oneness. It loses it loses supernatural. It just becomes right other natural. It becomes otherworldly. Right, and this might be part of the problem with with maybe one of Lewis's arguments. I, m- I remember reading um, the Silver Chair growing up. Oh, and the Narnia Chronicles. Yeah, and this. I mean, this was. Later on, this is when I was going to Bible college and I was really beginning to, to grapple with my faith and, and whether or not I could truthfully say I believed in God. And I remember reading the end of that book and the argument he makes about the existence of the supernatural has to do with this idea of like, okay, it's almost like this, this tree of being that we were doing before maybe. It, it, it is. But I mean, he talks about, yeah, so there's like a candle, oh, but there's a, there's, a, there's a bigger candle in the sky. And then, and then this witch is like, well... Sounds like you're just talking about this this candle and just trying to make it sound like a, a bigger version of itself. Yeah, and like and and then you, you, they talk about Narnia, where Narnia is, because they're obviously in this underworld cave place. It, it, okay, it goes into the cave analogy really very nice. much. It's he's he's, very he's well and very intentional. Uh, Lewis is a Platonist. He, he's very okay. clear. He, I mean, it, uh, what is it? The magician's nephew, uh, or, or maybe uh, I might get the. This is a quote. Uh, but it, the professor says to the kids, it, 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 "It's you know, it's all in Plato. I don't know what they teach children these days." Yeah, okay. I think that's. I think that's after the magician's nephew. I think that's the, uh, the the witch in the wardrobe, the most popular one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that actually that line made it into the movie as well. That's a great line. <laughs> it, it is a great line. And <laughs> so, and and Christianity, right, was nourished. It absorbed into itself. You can see it in Dionysus in the East, Augustine in the West. It absorbed Neoplatonism into itself profoundly, deeply. Um, and Christian Platonism, uh, so Paul Tyler's book on return to reality, Christian Platonism for today, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, uh, there's a reason why those two came together. You got sort of the greatest exploration of the logos in Platonism um, and then the greatest explanation of, uh, exploration of mythos in Christianity, and of course, they both share the commitment to to the logos, and right. and so they they get drawn together in this powerful way. Um, so Lewis's proposal is that Christianity within Christianity we could still find uh, the Platonism and the Neoplatonism that could properly give us back this sense of the supernatural that I was talking to you about and trying to give you a plat- basically a Platonic argument for it. Um, and, and it's I would argue with a lot of other people, um, but also against a lot of people, that it's that Neoplatonic vision that is still the fundamental sort of grammar of science. Uh, Science also gives us levels of reality. It'll say things like, 
well, this table isn't as real as the atoms that make it up, right? So there's things like that. Well, and I think the problem I had reading that that chapter and, you know, taking it very personally and trying to think about, well, so, you know, the idea of, of basically like the idea of the image of God being in man is like, okay, so you're just, you want to imagine a, a more manly or more human, human, humanly humanity or like some thing that's beyond is like, how do you know that really exists? It's like, if, if I think I was just going the wrong direction in my mind, I was saying, okay, so even more this, even like less anything else, more just this. Yeah. Right? You're, you're, you're doing this, I mean, you're doing the superhero uh, way of trying to get to the okay, divine. Interesting to connect that with superheroes. Cause that's obviously where our culture is, is doing right now. Right, too. right, right, right. And so, so what's wrong with that? Or why, why do we, why do we get trapped going that direction rather than, you know, going towards the nothingness or the, or the, the mythos? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a good question, uh, and there's, uh, there's, I mean, the fact that, the fact that the Marvel franchise has been so dominant, and and what is it about? It's not just that there's these amazing movies with these superheroes, who are basically sort of Greek gods, right? Is there's a shared world? There's a shared world, a shared worldview, where things are not as they seem, and there's this other behind, and right. And and but but we can relate to them because they're still human and they're still frail, and so it's very much a hunger for that sacred kind of meaning. Um, the problem with that is that saying that you're in the image of God does not mean that God is in the image of a human being. Right. It's to say that your capacity for self-transcendence to follow the logos, as we're trying to follow it in this conversation as it unfolds, right? And you did it earlier. You did that. You invoked the logos. The logos, right? Yeah, you know, uh, the logos is within you, right? And and you're within it. And that, that's, it's that participation that's trying to be pointed to, I would argue, in the imagery language, right? Is that, right? And I, who was I reading? It was a commentary, I think, on Nicholas of Cusa. I can't remember. Um, with, uh, no, it was the, the, a book I was reading on contemplative Christianity where the author was saying that what we're trying to do is to transform the image of God into the likeness of God, which is... For you to remember that the, the, the judge's gavel, that image is not justice, right? But what is it in you? It's to, so to go from the image is to realize that you participate in justice. If there was no, this is a Platonic argument. If you had no sense of justice, I couldn't teach you what justice is, right? But does that mean your sense is complete and perfect? No, of course not. But it, it needs to be educated. That, that it is a real sense of justice. And you part, you know justice by your capacity to participate in it. You, right. it, is, it is in you and you are within it. That's what you have to remember when you're transforming the image to the likeness. It's that that's being called out. And when we go the other way, when we try to reduce the likeness to the image, then of course we can fall prey to all kinds of confusion. Confusion, which I, I love your yeah. always emphasis of confusion. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, well, I, I don't want to let this go on forever because, I mean, I, I, it would if, if we were, <laughs> we're allowed to, but 
I want to try to explore a little bit of, well, I mean, maybe if you're comfortable sharing a little bit of, of this, like why you're not comfortable calling yourself a Christian and why, I mean, you yeah. obviously you grew up, the, the reason that I want to call myself a Christian doesn't seem to land for you. Like you, you, you're not part of a Christian community. Yeah. And so I, I, I want to, I want to diffuse. I want to, I want to break apart. I want to, I want to try to figure out what's, what's, where's the disagreement between Christianity or even within and, and with Neoplatonism and Buddhism and just try to, we brought these together. Let's, let's separate them again a little bit. So first of all, <laughs> there's a, bit of irony but first of all the confession i mean so part of it is no doubt my idiosyncratic psychodynamic bias of being traumatized by the particular version of christianity i grew up in and so there's part of me um that hesitates to return to that because of that now i i i hope that that's not all it is because that would be just unfair to uh, to the richness of christianity mm-hmm. i have some deep I think some deeper reasons, but I want to I want to put clear up front that I'm aware that there is bias in, in what I'm saying. I just want to I just want to say that. So for me, there are some really crucial things. Uh, one is I think Christianity, especially post Reformation Christianity, has been locked into. Uh, uh, actually, an anti-Platonic framework. Anomalism. Nominalism is the, the, as anti-Platonic as you get. Anomalism has a huge influence on Luther and Calvin, and it gets uh, uh, right, and it, so that gets sewn into Christianity in deep way. And then, almost as sort of a, as a reaction to that, the notion of the supernatural gets reified, and and, and the way I said, it's, it's turned into another world rather than a not not a world like we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. just a collection of other sort of glowing things rather than the uh, an image that we see through right. towards so the no thingness it's just superheroes yeah exactly like superheroes are easy it's like that's not yeah now and, and I, I want to be very careful here. I, I'm no doubt aware that there are many Christians perhaps you're one of them it strikes me as plausible who are saying well that's not what I believe when I believe Christianity and I don't and I, I want to acknowledge. I don't identify me that way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I want to be respectful of that. I'm, but I think it's fair for me to say that these have been pervasive and powerful versions of Christianity. They're definitely dominant in North America. Um, I have a problem w- with that. Connected with that is that God is often thought as a super thing, the supreme being. God is not the supreme being. God, it, this is this is where I'm interested in going. Yeah, Be, that makes no sense. That's to make God a being, which means God belongs to the right and is and is beholding to the source of all being and the source of all being. Similar to the argument, we, and this is not an it's argument non-being. you will not find. Sorry, this is an argument you will find in the depths of Christianity and with the mystics. The ground of being is not a being. And then Heidegger brought this out, the ontotheological mm-hmm. critique. The ground of being is not a being. Even if God were the super being, he, he would ultimately be dependent on the ground of being. It's incorrect. And so when you emphasize, again, 
I understand why people want to say God's a person because they want a personal relationship with him because person means their entire reality is in right relationship to some ultimate reality. Like you want a personal relationship. But God, I mean, in a very technical sense, God isn't a person. The words that were used for the Trinity are hypostasis. That's translated as person. That's not what hypostasis means. Hypostasis means hypostasis, that which stands under. It's a, a better translation is ground. The ground of something, not the person of something. So, so hypo means what? Under, like a hypothermic need a hypo, uh, hypo uh, not hypothermic. Uh, what's a hypo? What's a, a hypo? You know, you're putting it under your skin. Okay. A needle. All right, I, uh, I don't even know that word, but anyways. And then uh, hypostasis stands under. That's which stands under. Okay. It's the ground. It's the grounding, and and you get the you know you get. The, the the constant refrain from the mystical the, the mystical traditions within Christianity that to think of God as a thing, right? So and Dionysus, you know, he's arguing. He says, you know, it's just as correct and incorrect to call God a rock as it is to call God a person. Now that's probably offensive to you, but if the Bible does it, the Bible does it and does it without a, without a thought, yeah. right? Jesus does it. Doesn't yes, yeah. yes, and Jesus does it of himself. I'm a vine, I'm a door, yeah. right? And, and, and so the point I'm trying to make is, I'm, try, I'm, I, I'm talking about sort of the prominent features of Christianity that I find difficult. That's another one. I, so I find the anti-Platonic, Elements that I think Christianity is ha, has stabbed itself in the heart, right? And in, in, in the ways it tried to respond to the Reformation and the Scientific Revolution. And it now uh, I want to I, I want to be really mindful of my friend Jonathan Pajot. Eastern Orthodoxy didn't go through that same tradition. This is part I would say. Here I'm going to say something more provocative. I would say that one of the reasons why. Pajot and Eastern Orthodoxy in general is going through such a revival is precisely because of the Neoplatonism that is preserved within that Christianity, right? And so that's a problem I have. I have the 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 the, the God's a thing that the, that the transcendent is just another world filled with superheroes. I have a problem with pluralism. I and there's even sort of like so my my RA Jensen Kim did work, you know. People within religious traditions are better at cultivating wisdom than people in a, without. Mm-hmm. But there's no difference between those traditions. I can't. There's, like there's I can't. No difference, at least as far as the way we've, we've studied. No, 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 no. What I mean is, there's no difference in how wise the people are within those traditions. By any me- by any measure by any measure you use to say people within a religious tradition are better at cultivating wisdom and virtue than people without, that's those same measures say the the person within the Jewish tradition or the Buddhist tradition can do right. just as well. Yeah. Well, and in the conversation, the most recent conversation I, I had with, well, I guess our mutual friend JP. Yes. This was the point that we sort of landed on that we were, I, I guess I wondering how you would respond to because it seems like the difference between some religions at least i mean comparing even like eastern and western religion it's like the a lot of what i've read about, and i have a yeah. very surface level understanding of buddhism and eastern yeah. religion in general but it seems to be a lot more focused on a personal practice of um encountering nothingness yeah nothingness yeah, yeah. right and there's not i mean I mean, maybe there's like a community element of like a, you know, being that, part so of a dojo or something. I, 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 so I, I do want to press back on that. Uh, and 
and and and I don't want to be harsh to you because you 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 disclose your ignorance. Uh, but the 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 like even if you want to officially become a Buddha, you have to you have to sort of take the, the three refuges: the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, and so the Buddha doesn't mean the historical Buddha. The Buddha means your capacity to, be, to become a Buddha, the light within you, if you'll allow me that. Enlightenment, right? right. Your capacity for enlightenment. Uh, the Dharma the dhar- Dharma is probably the closest Sanskrit term for logos. Okay. So it doesn't just mean written down things. It means the logos of things, the Dharma of things. Is it the intelligibility? Yeah, the, okay. the active intelligibility of okay. things. And then the Sangha is the community. And you, all three, okay. you need all three. And all three of those are in most or all of the, the common schools of, of Buddhism? Yes, yes. Okay. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Thich Nhat Hanh, I thought this was my friend Jordan Hall, but uh, it, it, I have been corrected. It goes back to Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh's, he's a famous Buddhist. Okay. You know, he said the next Buddha is the Sangha. Hmm. So the idea that there isn't community and Common unity, community—that's that's not true. But what what are the community like? Wh- where's what's the sort of Eastern liturgy? <laughs> Depends. I mean, so uh, I mean, it's stuff like I mean, you 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 play Tai Chi. Yeah, so that's for, from Taoism. But you get Zen basically by integrating Taoism and uh, a version uh, of Buddhism together, and that becomes Chan, and then it's taken to China and integrated with sort of ja- sorry, taken from China to Japan. And integrated with some aspects of Shinto and Japanese feudalism, and you get Zen. Okay. Which I don't know, I like anything about what Zen is. <laughs> but but even in Zen, like there's there are Zen temples, okay. and there and you can join a Zen community. You can go into a monastery. Uh, so is it just the way that because the way I see people sort of toying around with with Buddhism and Eastern spirituality in the West is just you know. But that, but that's it's very personal. Like, oh, I'm just going to try this out and, and like do it myself, and I'm going to go have a, a Zen space in my house. I'm going to have a, you know, I'm going to do yoga. Yeah, but that's just, that, that's one of the mindfulness different. app. Well, uh, yeah, have exactly. Sam talk to me. Well, well <laughs> that's that, and that, I'm you know, and that's one of the problems. I mean, so one, so I've seen several. I've read several anthropologists and uh, and religious studies, the, the academics who study religion and phenomena who argued that. <clears throat> the distinction, I'm spiritual but not religious, uh, can often mean the religion of me, right? And, and so he, people are, are going to pursue religio. They're, they're, going to, they're going to do what they can to overcome pa- pervasive patterns of self-deception, self-destruction. They're going to do whatever they come to, can, sorry, they're going to do whatever they can enhance the sense of connectedness to themselves, to each other, to the world. Right. And there's great scientific, cognitive scientific arguments for that, and they're right. in my series. But the point is, this is profound. So people are going to seek wisdom, always. Right. So that is, it, it's not optional for you. Now, people can do it very poorly, they can do it very shallowly, they can try and avoid it, like Kierkegaard talks about in some of his masterpieces. But they, 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 they it, they, it is inevitable that they will have some profound relationship, even if it's one of disclaiming and, and distraction, right, to the need to cultivate wisdom and, and meaning. So that's, that's not optional for them. But, but most people, for reasons similar, uh, many people, at least the ones I've talked to and the ones I've read about, reject the existing religions as viable places 
in which they can home an ecology of practices by which they can do this. And so they're often doing it sort of half consciously. They don't know quite what they're doing. They're doing it in an isolated, fragmented, semi-conscious, autodidactic fashion. Now, you can learn things in that way. But if you were going to really, if you really wanted to learn art, do you want to pursue it unconsciously, fragmentedly, autodidactic fashion in which all of your biases have a tremendous capacity to reinforce themselves? That's not a good way to learn. You want to learn it dialogically, right? You want to learn it with other people. And so, right? Dialogos. Dialogos, yeah. yes. And so it's, it's it, it, the, the importation of Buddhism, which is very much invested in the Sangha and the Dharma, right? Into a kind of individualistic religion of me project is, and this, this is not a, a criticism unique to me, the, the, the whole criticism of, of McMindfulness, yeah. right? Is that this is, we, have, we are doing something in which we are severely um, misframing, like mm -hmm. we've been talked about, we've, and we're reducing, like we've been talking about, a very complex thing that has to have a life of its own in community with others in order to operate into a thing I can do just for myself by myself. We are reducing, we are reducing an entire religio wisdom tradition to a self-help project. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an individual self-help project too. Very it? much, very which, much. I mean, you bring up make mindfulness, which I haven't read that whole book, but I've heard a little bit about it and I've read a little bit of it. Um, and it's like really connected to a critique of, of the capitalist usage of mindfulness to basically just to keep people as, as, cause I mean the most profitable unit of, of within the machine of capitalism is an individual who will go and make purchases. Yep. Right. And so it, it's, yeah, it becomes an ex extension of that idol, that idolatry of capitalism, which, yeah, I, I, I like to view things it helps me to build some compassion for for any community when I can see it reactively and I can see any position. As yeah, I, I, and I think the mindfulness movement, both its its greatness and its folly, <clears throat> are responses to the meaning crisis. Very much, very much. And so, I want to be clear. I you know I publish criticisms like and an attempt to reformulate the mindfulness construct with Leo Ferraro, but I, I want to be clear that right i'm not i'm not saying don't take up mindfulness i think mindfulness practices sure, i think sure. but what i'm saying is if what you want to do and, and and you know the buddha warned about he warned about people who took up mindfulness in order to get a kind of you know inertial contentedness with yeah. themselves he called he was constantly warning against people who practice in order to become indolent which is a great term right and and, and so what i'm saying is don't take up mindfulness for that reason. Take up mindfulness because you want to transcend yourself. You want to become wiser. And you want to do that and, and realize that when I say yourself, and this is a Buddhist point, you're not talking about something inside you. You're talking about your capacity to relate to the world, to your own body, and to other people. Right. So you become more deeply self when you, when you engage the, the Sangha as well as yes, the Dharma. Yes, totally. Right. Totally. Okay, so, I mean, to get sort of well, I mean, let's let's do the mutual disclosure thing because 
on my part, that's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just a very social guy. I'm very socially <laughs> yeah, motivated. Yeah. I, I have difficulty getting, I mean, I, I'm also kind of a, my attention will run around and, and I want to work on a lot of different artistic projects. I have a lot of ideas, but the only ones I'm really committed to finishing and the ones that I do finish are ones where I become socially motivated you know, within a community, it's like so. I, oh no, that, you're backed up by all kinds of research. If you want to change a habit, join a community. Right, and also, like I, I feel a deep sense of of a of a psychological need to be practicing within my religious community. Or it's like my, uh, I, I, I guess I feel very personally committed to to this search for wisdom. I mean, probably you said like that's everybody. And I take, I've taken it very personally, again, probably as a response to being treated too much as just a, a gray, you know, cog in a huge yeah, machine. Yeah. And then I wanted to hyper-focus on my person, personhood. But I, I, I had to struggle with, okay, so can I call myself a Christian? I, I don't, I mean, the identity of Christian, the being identical to all other Christians, that is not true about me. But the, like it is a true thing to say that my community, the people that I care about, the people that I have meaningful conversations with, most of them also I would call themselves, would name themselves as Christians, and they participate in Christian practices in, in Christian communities. And I mean, for, to one extent I feel it's like, okay, well, that's the community I'm, I'm most qualified to speak to. And that would be the community I could, I could meaningfully move forward. I mean, like... Did it all, in all the ways that Christianity bothers me, stop being something that is really that meaningful for me to, to center my life on as soon as I'm not a Christian. Right. Because right, then, right. then I'm just somebody outside complaining and blaming and, and being kind of point, just, you know, like that, that's not the opposite of useful. It's like that, that's starting a conversation with disagreement. I, I, and I think that's a good point. The, 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 the proper need to be included within a process and a community that transcends you to participate, uh, I, 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 that's a totally legitimate need. The problem I have with that, back to me, uh, sorry, I'm not trying to steal the limelight. What sure. I mean is my response, back to why I find it difficult, that's what I'm trying to say, is that that, that I think legitimate claim to uh, in being included has a shadow side of, and it's had a historical shadow side of being exclusive, namely that only in Christianity, and this has been associated with two great empires and colonialism, and a lot of nastiness. I mean, I, I, you know, I like what Tom Holland and Paul Vanderclay, you know, look at all the th great things that Christianity gave for us. It did, mm -hmm. but you got to take into, you know, that Christianity also had a triumphalism to it. Uh, and, you know, I grew up in a church that that regularly said, you know, you know, Buddhism is sending millions of people to hell every day. Yeah, and things like that. And it's, <clears throat> so for me, I would say, <laughs> wow, this is really pretentious. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Go for it. Uh, you said you had till one. Yeah. It's 12.58. Uh, well, let's just go a few more minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say the, the, one of the essential features of a Christian is what we talked about at the beginning with Paul. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. <clears throat> now the thing, um, the thing is that, that I call that Leo, Leo Ferrara and I published, and I, this is, this is a phenomenon. We internalize other people 
we indwell them and then we internalize them. That's how we actually develop a capacity to for metacognition. The child internalizes how the parent is looking at the child and that allows the child to step back and look at themselves and you get what's called metacognition. Your self-awareness, your awareness of your own. You become a reflective being by re being reflected in others, right? And that's again why you can't do this ultimately on your own. So we internalize people and one of what you can see across traditions, wisdom traditions, is inter what we call internalizing the sage, internalizing the person who's like the judge in your image of justice. They allow you to come into a real relationship with wisdom and with meaning and through them with what is ultimate. And for Christians, I take it that Christ is that. And you, internal you internalize it so deeply, like... It's not, Christ, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. But the Buddhists would say, ultimately, you have to realize your Buddha nature, right? So that the Buddha is also going to be deeply internalized. This, you can understand all of Stoicism, and Stoicism is going through a huge revival right now too, as the project of internalizing Socrates as their sage. Now, <laughs> I've found that and maybe this is a flaw in me, and I'm willing to consider that. But I can't have a single sage. I need Socrates. Jesus is one of my sages, and I've, I've really come back around to really trying to have, the, you know, in the, in the mythological sense, have Jesus live within me. But Socrates is one of my sages, and Sartarda Gautama is one of my sages, right. and Plotinus and Spinoza are also my sages. And so for me, the reason why I wouldn't call myself, I'm happy to say that I honor Jesus. I'm happy to say that for me, Jesus is, in the metaphorical sense, living within me and helping me to cultivate wisdom. But I don't call myself Christian. In addition to all the other reasons I've given, it's because I also want to say that about Socrates and I also want to say that about Siddhartha. And I don't want to feel disloyal to them. I'm like the child who doesn't want to take sides with the divorcing parents, um, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, and that's a, maybe a good analogy because it's like, okay, there's there's a marriage that I was that I came from, and it's it's not either one of these parents. It's it's both of them as as participants in the larger thing that is the marriage that is the, my family. It's like yeah. I'm not getting rid of my family or choosing part of it. But that that family analogy is I mean that that's where I'm I, want, I just want to kind of play around for a second and think about it because okay. so how does how, I mean you said we talked about being true talked about like I mean re, sort of exclusivity in relationship it's like okay so that's why what, marriage was often used in Christianity because marriage is supposed to connote a kind of exclusivity of relationship you can you can have many friends close friends yeah but you can only be married to one person yes right, I understand so, so so you, I mean, you you choose. I mean, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary. You you choose somebody. You could have chose anybody else. I mean, th there's. It's not that you could have chose anybody. There is a, a certain level of constraint of a people that hopefully that I when, could manage to get yeah. along with. Hopefully, if your choice is wise, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but I mean, it's like okay. So I I, I choose a wife, and I mean, I'm married. I, I I really love my wife, and I'm glad. I'm happy for you. <laughs> I hope it lasts. And um, I really well, do. so I mean, but that's. So choosing to be true, choosing to be faithful, which I mean is hearing, beginning to make some Orthodox friends and talk about that language and having, yep. you know, a lit, 
well, being faithful to God. And so, so in my relationship to my, to my wife, I'm trying to have a relationship with love, with romantic love, sort of abstractly. I don't know if, the, if this is going to work, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. maybe that's part of what, what we're after there. I understand. I mean, what you're saying is that, you know, if you're going to be related to something, ultimately, it's going to give, right, there's going to be an exclusivity, but you, you might, part of the analogy might be, but it's possible to be married to somebody else and also find that. But you're kind of married, if you'll allow me, to Christianity. Am I, am I sort of getting... Yeah, that, that, that's where I'm going with it. And I, and I, I mean, I believe that, like that, that you should have a good reason to, to leave your wife if you're going to. Uh, yes, as somebody who's been through divorce, I think that's uh, yeah, that's very well said. Um, and, and I think it's right when people say John can't be that wise because <laughs> uh, he's messed up his relationships. And I, I, I think that's fair. I think that's, that's mean. Yeah, uh, but it's it. There's truth to it. Um, uh, when I talk about internalizing the sage. I want to make clear that I'm talking about them like there's a whole ecology of practices, like the judge. The judge, there's the judge, there's the the, the you know the prosecution, the defense, there's the bailiff, there's the like there's an entire ecology. So what uh, what I mean there is right uh, when I'm what, Socrates and Jesus and the Buddha stand for ecologies of practices, and I love ecologies of practices that I was that I could only find within Buddhism and within Taoism and within Neoplatonism that I can't find properly homed together or even present within mm-hmm. the Christian communities that, that I see. Um, but I mean there there are other women out there that like that I could I could love features about them that I would you know would really like to maybe be with for a long period of time. I mean that's very true. I mean yeah. But, but what what there's if, there's a reason that I cho- that I choose one wife and and and, and I, why, I, why is it that I I mean we could be after something deeper than like, like can I be after like a de- the deeper sense of religion of of, of wisdom beyond Christianity, well being, faithful? And, I think like, so. But I, and I, is that faithfulness necessary as well? I, I, like for, so, here's where I am very worried about my own bias. I want to. I more than want to. I think I would say that there are people within Christianity that I. I love these people precisely because I see them cultivating depth and wisdom and meaning. They bring the logos and the agape together in a way that I think is exemplary. But the problem for me is I see, I, first of all, again, the pluralism argument, I would also say that of people in other traditions. Sure. And for me, we're in a unique situation where we are facing a kind of complex environment that has new features in it like social media like the virtual world like the acceleration of of the hyper technology that we're in and so the, the the complexity of the world is not only increasing the rate of it is increasing and so i th- think we need a more 
complex, dynamically complex set of practices to be able to come into proper response to this completely novel threat. And I am suspicious, and I try to say that respectfully, that the individual religions are inadequate on their own for giving the set of tools necessary. But they've always been... You just... Okay, so you're saying in this moment... Yeah, okay, I think... I, I, yeah. So there's there's not enough, uh, whether you want to call them psychotechnologies, there's not enough practices, there's... The, or you said the ecologies of... Practice, yeah, ecologies of practices. Again, I'm, I'm ultimately more concerned not with what you believe, I'm, I'm really concerned with what you practice. Because that's but, where your transformation is going to be found. Please, I can tell I'm annoying you, but that's no, fine. no. I, it's, <laughs> the, I'm really glad we set the framework and got to know each other a little bit before we could get to this stuff because this this means a lot more. Coming, you know, engaging from what the concept we've already talked about and made some connections on. I, can I just I, say something right here? Because I want to be really clear. If like I don't want to take anybody out of their faith. Right. Okay. That is not something I want to do. People accuse me of that, and that's unfair, right? Um, but I, but I share your concern. Like, but but it goes beyond that. It's just the the because the marriage analogy is really important, and I have friends that are just. I, I mean, this is a very common perspective that people just don't want to get married anymore. Yes. Because again, it's like okay, well, that the affordances of being in that you know in a specific relationship. May not you know that as for, maybe it's just a limited view of what that relationship could be, but it's just okay. That person can't. I, I mean, I can't get through my whole life with that person. We had a season, you know, and you saw like people try to do this really t in a tidy way, like Chris Martin and um, what's her face, the the Pepper Potts, Gwen, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, they they had like a conscious uncoupling. And, and I mean, you still listen to Chris Martin on Ghost Stories. I mean, that's the, one of Coldplay's most recent records, and he's the guy's heartbroken still. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like, Pretending that you could just run this propositionally and just by sort of, you know, some easy reflections within your, your, your conscious mind is ridiculous. That, that is such a disembodied, such a disembodied understanding of love and, and, and how, that, how we couple with people. And that, But that seems to be the enacted concern that, that marriage might not be enough for facing the admittedly very novel problems of existing right now. Yeah, and, 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 and I'm very careful to say, and I've said this repeatedly, so it's not just me backpedaling here, I don't have a foreclosure argument. I don't, like, I mean, Jonathan Pajot has got this very radical proposal that Christianity itself is dying, that Christianity is going to go through a death and resurrection that is unforeseeable to us. People don't get how ra really radical that is, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, um, and, and, you know, and he's right. Christianity's done it before. Maybe it's going to do it. And, and this is part of it. One of the arguments you could throw back to me uh, is you could say, look, you know, Christianity has just made, transformed itself in the past in ways that people could not have foreseen. Yeah. And I want to acknowledge that. It could be that I'm just wrong and I'm on the wrong side of history or something like that. And, you know, and you know, 20 years from now, Christianity integrates with something and like the way it integrated with Neoplatonism and, you know, and all, and it, it, it's, it's this other thing and people go, whoa. And then they, 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 they do this neat thing where they say, well, it's always been that. It reminds me of or Orwell. We've always been at war with Oceania, right? It's always been that. It was like, yeah. well, sort of, yeah, but no. It's of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Um, so that's that. 
I have no argument that would lead to the conclusion where I could say, no, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I just don't see the evidence now of it happening. Jonathan does, and mm-hmm. we, I don't, and we disagree on that. And, 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 I, and I, I hope, I think we respectfully disagree. And so for me, I want to try and get free from that axial age mythology, that two mm-hmm. world supernaturalism, the embedded nominalism, right? The triumphalism, the exclusivism, all of the, uh, and even to some degree, paradoxically, because it was supposed to be about the church, the individualism that Christianity, right, right ha- has bred. I want to be, I, I, I think that framework is too enmeshed with the problematic principalities and powers of the meaning crisis and the meta crisis that we're in that. I don't, I can't put my bet there. I mean, if I, if I had to choose, I'd be, I'd be an Eastern Orthodox Christian that was in a church that really emphasizes the Neoplatonism, right? My, my issue is even worse because like, again, my most immediate community is like, I mean, if, if, if I were to just like, just jump into the world right now and just get to choose a religion based on like my affinity for religion, I would probably want to be Eastern Orthodox as well. Yeah. But I'm not. Yeah. I'm deeply evangelical that that's the way i grew up that that's those are my peers and evangelical christianity is you know one of the most problematic versions of christianity from yeah. from my perspective I, I mean maybe that's maybe that's a good maybe that's a bad thing but it's like again i, I look at it as an opportunity to to speak to some things i mean obviously i, I don't everything i'm just a young guy trying to figure shit out yeah but, <laughs> yeah but but I mean, at least it, it feels more meaningful again to like, to, okay, so these are d- problems I can identify and then maybe I could actually help work on. But... Yeah, const- I mean, a constructive engagement kind of argument, yes. Right. It, and that's... So uh, to plug that back into the marriage analogy, because I, I think that's that those things are really, really deeply connected. It's, it's, it, it's like... Yeah. Fix it, don't it, break it. I get it. And... and, 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 and but and, you just and, don't feel... Like I, I, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to tap into what, where you're at, and why you're there. Is is well, is, let's do the marriage analogy, and let's say that when I divorced, that, that was the wise thing to do, precisely because, right? There's, it's possible to stay in a in a relationship you shouldn't stay in. That's possible. That's a real possibility that the relationship could is ultimately not. And, 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 and I want to be really careful here. I, like, I've tried a sort of a non-monogamous thing in my past. I'm committed to monogamy in my romantic relationships. Like that, that's who I am. Kind of like the way you, you know, in your guts, you're a Christian. Like, so your analogy is really pulling on me because I, de- I, 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 in my romantic relationships, I'm very committed right, to monogamy. I'm, I'm very committed to, you know, fix it, don't break it. So I get your analogy. I, 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 I have allegiance to it. I understand. But I also have been in this situation where, the, you know, and, and we both agreed that the, the, and it wasn't the conscious parting or anything. It was always oh, like cutting my heart out when, when that relationship ended. Um, but isn't it possible though, to be in a relationship that's ultimately toxic? Yeah. Well, I've so seen, I, I've seen, I think I've we're seen on the people. same page there, and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and I would like to explore what what some might. I mean, maybe you can't even make a, a small list of the, the features you look for of, of a relationship that's going bad and that you should get out of. But I mean, people have tried to do that, and there probably are some things you can point to. But but what you just said 
a minute ago is you said that you can't you can't have one sage. Yes. And I mean, well, because it I was trying that when I, when you if you make that position, you you lose your ability then to participate in a community. I, I think period, like a community centers around, like. Oh. No, but an I, identity, a common, a common sage, common or, unity, yeah. yeah. And so, but I do participate in communities, right? I mean, you know, in the, the religion that's not a religion community, uh, which is taking on a life of its own uh, beyond mm-hmm. me, which means it's not beholding to me, which means it's a real community. Uh, and, but are you committed to that community? Like, in, are, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm committed to doing a lot to trying to help it flourish. I understand what you mean by uh, do I have places and people I practice with? Yeah, I do. And a lot of that is actually public, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, the dialectic into dialogus practices, the philosophical fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I taught, the, you know, all through 2019 or 2020, both, um, you know, daily online meditation and contemplation courses and the cultivation of wisdom and a sangha grew up around that. Started calling itself a sangha, um, so I think I, I mean it's a fair criticism, and and Paul and Jonathan have made it of me and my work. Uh, I think I, I'm moving towards, and I do all the I do I've turned my cognitive scientific lens towards distributed cognition and collective intelligence to try and understand yeah. the phenomena. So I think I'm being responsible to that criticism and 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 belonging. I, I get your point, um, but you so you just you don't want to be monotheistic, in a sense that you don't one expression of the sacred or or, or one image of of the of the supernatural is not that's not the final thing. But I I, forget, I, I, I mean I'm an, I'm a monist in that I think reality is ultimately one, right? Right, right. But there's there's a, another position which some people would argue is the position of the I mean. Of the Hebraic or the sort of the Abrahamic religion, which is monolatry or monolatry. Yeah, no, there's other gods, but but there's one that you, above. Yeah, right. The, the high god. Or, or, yeah, which I mean, it sounds kind of kind of gnostic. Yeah, it's, it's just it's, but, it's, but it's, again, which is exactly a danger of that kind of thing. Yeah, but there, I guess, we don't land there because of what you've already said. That okay, that, that beyond you, you can't have a being at the core so of things. It's I, I beyond describe, being. I describe myself as a non-theist. Right. So I, I think that the the common set of presuppositions of I used to call it classical theism and I'm uncomfortable with that because I'm reading a lot of the history because of theism, um, but what I would now call common theism um, uh, that the presuppositions of common theism and common atheism the ones that are pervasive right now those shared presuppositions I reject those as a non-theist. Yeah. Well. I I don't know if if we, I feel like you've you've opened yourself up a little bit more for me to 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 do some I mean and to to look at it and see that reflection in that deep calling out to deep and you've given me some genuine you know personal stuff to to chew on and to think about. Um, yeah, um, I, and I I guess I really really appreciate you doing what you're doing for for I mean partially. What you're doing right here, what you're doing in general, because it's caused me to reflect on my own faith in a more deep way. But also, it, what you're doing may be a really necessary thing to do in our landscape because of the many, many number of people that feel 
that feel like they, they cannot commit to a religion. They can't commit to the, the identity, the baggage that might come with that. And it's like if, when, if you can open up a space that says hey, that we can, let's contemplate wisdom, let's, let's contemplate, let's, let's focus, yeah. let's you know, yeah. look, at, look at, the, at the spire, let's look, yeah. look up at the spirit of things yeah. without being you know, confined to the restrictions of the slow moving nature of really large organized religion or a particular, or maybe just one of those ones. Maybe we're going to start a new one, and it's going to it's going to move slowly too, and we're going to get caught up in some stuff. But I, I think that space is a really, really, really important one to open up and to and to, I'm I, I guess I'm I'm really glad you're doing that. I'm Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you're being co- committed and you're belonging to a community. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I, I, I thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I think I, I think everybody acknowledges that the nuns, the N O N E S, are the growing demographic. Yeah. And pretending that's not the case is not going to help them. Mm-hmm. Now, I may be wrong, and I'm willing to acknowledge that. But I'm willing to ask people who are committed to a particular a faith tradition that they might be wrong, and you know, opening that up like you yeah. just did. I think that's 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 the most agopic thing to do. It's like Right. Okay. Well, I think we should we should probably close things up here. But is there? Well, we opened up with with the, with the, with kind of a, a breathing exercise meditation. Is there is there any way you could think of that would be appropriate to to end a whatever this was? <laughs> I think the thing that always helps me, and I even did it when I was doing Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, is to end these things with the expression of gratitude. So thank you for making this possible. And like I said, I really appreciated how this unfolded. And I really felt the logos here, that we were, things were growing between us, that we were participating in. It wasn't me, it wasn't you, but it was something beyond you and I together. And it was trying to, it was a logos that is trying to track what is most real and most relevant. And if you'll allow me a biblical term, it, 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 was, a, it was a spirit worthy of, of following. Um, and so I thank you for that. I mean, thank you. I mean, I think that's a great way to, to end things too. And, and, and yeah, thank Thank you for giving me this. Is, this has felt like such a cool opportunity to, to participate on a, on a level of, of, yeah, looking for wisdom, talking about things that I, I mean, I, obviously I, we wouldn't have been able to this conversation, which is both of us happening. It couldn't yeah. have existed unless, you know, you, you afforded yourself to me in this, in this time and in this way and so i'm really really thankful for the what you've just let me participate in (laughs) well you've um well you're welcome and um i had a sense as you can imagine i get lots of people who want to talk to me and i try to look for a sense of authenticity um and appreciation like for in both sense of the word of my work and i got that sense from you and have lived up and beyond that expectation. So thank you for that too. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.